Hello and welcome to episode 33 of We Have Such Films to Show You. Uh, this week we are talking about uh, Ridley Scott's 1979 space horror masterpiece, Alien. And uh, probably, you know, although it's not the plan per se, we'll probably end up talking about bits of the other films in the franchise too, because how can you yeah. not? Uh, I am I am Josh Millard, your host who is talking, and uh, next to me, uh, 3,000 miles away, is uh, Yaakov Grinberg. The host who was not talking during that pregnant pause there. We've, got, we've developed a real sort of, like, purred from uh, Parks and Rec uh, scheme there with the describing talking and whatnot. Like, we've done this two or three times now, I feel like. Do you, do you watch Parks and Rec? I do not. I've oh, seen a couple of episodes, yeah. and I'm just like, I'm not entirely sure what the appeal here is. And I know that's kind of my fault, mostly, but... It's it, it's a specific sort of feel for a show. I, I like it a lot. I, uh, at the risk of sounding overly cornball, I, I, I think it, it, it benefits from, by and large, having a fair amount of heart for a sitcom. You know uh, what? I've, it, I, I, I really, really enjoy Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I hear just like everybody who I know who watches Parks and Rec and like, likes Brooklyn Nine-Nine says it's got the same sort of appeal because of like, you know, the heart and the fact that these are, you know, a group of people who are, you know, genuinely decent people and genuinely like each other. So, you know, I, it's, uh, but, you know, I, I tried to watch a few episodes of Parks and Rec and it just didn't take. Maybe it's, I'll try again at some point. Yeah, and I've heard people say the the first season was a little rough. I don't really. You know, I, I went right to the second but, season because apparently yeah. the second season may as well be like a first season of a different show. Yeah, it it, it builds up uh, across the show. The characters build up nicely. It, part of it is I just I I basically like the entire cast too. I think Amy mm-hmm. Poehler's great. Um, uh, Rashida Jones is great. Uh, Ron Swanson, I can't even remember Nick the man's Offerman. name. Thank you. <laughs> it's like I know his name's not Ron. But uh, Aziz Ansari is great. Like everybody on it is great. So it's a, it's a really yeah. I've fun seen ensemble. clips Chris of it on Pratt's YouTube too, and they're Aubrey all Plaza. generally pretty funny. I guess at some point I just have to sit down and actually give it an honest chance. Yeah, it helps when it sort of gels a little bit. The whole the whole narrative thrust of it around uh, Leslie Nope, Amy Poehler's character as this sort of like over loyal civic servant, uh, kind of comes together as the characters accrete a little bit of personality across the, the multiple episodes is my feeling but anyway there's a there's a small town newscaster there named purd who uh is extremely literal like he always describes things instead of like doing a nice segue with a wordplay he does a segue where he just describes the segue like it would be not out of character for him to say and now for our next segment i'll perform a segue introducing the topic of the next segment you know, and that's like that's about the level he operates at. So I feel like our anyway, what we're talking about, Alien, is uh, this is our podcast about Parks and Rec and uh, how I haven't seen it and you yes, have. Yes. I, I thought it'd be really interesting to discuss six seasons of a show that I had seen and you had seen none of because I feel like we could really have somewhat different takes on uh, sort of the characterization and the, the writing. Um, yeah, Maybe we should have like a, another podcast where one of us just tells the other one about a show they like that the other one hasn't seen, and we could just call it "I Have Such a Show to Show You Specifically the Other Guy." That sounds like a really that sounds like a really good title for a show. I think that's yeah. solid. That's 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 outstripping you talking you two to me for most convoluted. Uh, that I, is that good? Is that a good podcast? I enjoy it. I enjoy it a great deal. Is it about you two? 
I'm, I'm making finger quotes while I say yes. I mean, here's the thing. It, it, it legitimately, uh, Adam Scott, uh, again, Parks and Rec. Oh, it's um, Adam Scott? Adam Scott and Scott Ackerman oh. of Comedy Bang Bang. Uh, oh. They're friends, and they, they are both U2 fans. Like, genuinely, they, they both have liked U2 for a long time. You know, and, and so they got to talking about how they should do a podcast, and they ended up doing a podcast called You Talking U2 to Me. And they mention U2 at least once every episode. Um, some episodes, they actually end up spending 20 or 30 minutes talking about U2. Uh, most of them, it's somewhat less than that. Uh, but it's great because it's these two guys who are funny and friends doing a sort of really bullshitty comedy podcast that also talks about U2 sometimes. Yeah, that that's the thing. Like Of all the bands of which I would not enjoy listening to an extended discussion of you two is like almost at the top yeah well and, and that's the thing is that you don't really have to is because i i think you two is fine you know they have had a bunch of good songs i've never really been a fan in any sort of active sense but whatever but yeah it doesn't it it isn't like a, oh jesus do i really want to listen to an hour of this uh sort of feel at any time like the the longest really like there was a 20 minute stretch where they talked about their like experiences seeing a couple of live shows uh, early in their respective fandoms, I think, uh, that was like the longest continued discussion of U2. And even that was them sort of talking about their experiences going to see music. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I would recommend it. I, I, I've enjoyed it a great deal. I need to get caught up because they, they've got a new episode out because U2 finally put out that new album. And their original plan with the show was to do like several episodes pacing through their discography up to the release of the new record. And then they found out several episodes in that the new record wasn't coming out when it was rumored to. <laughs> and then, and then it turns out it really just wasn't coming out at any specific release dates. Uh, and so then they just sort of slowed way down and added some extra bullshit padding to add, like, like they needed to add bullshit padding, but they really intentionally didn't talk very much about U2 for some extra episodes. And then they just sort of stopped and said, okay, well that's, that's everything. And they put out the new album. So, uh, and then the new album came out, uh, and not only did it come out, but literally everyone with a like Apple device owned it, whether they wanted to or not. Uh, and I haven't heard that episode yet. So I'm excited to, to see their take on that. And yeah, so this is this has been uh, you talking, you talking, you two to me to me, uh, and uh, next up we've got uh, the Alien podcast from We Have Such Films to show you. Uh, this movie, uh, this is a weird, this is a weird one for me because uh, it's another movie that I've seen a ton of times, and I have a ton of like you know internalized feelings and opinions about. So it's not like sitting down and like I, I sat down and watched it and took notes, of course, but. It's a very different experience from like sitting down and taking notes on something where I'm trying to sort of organize my thoughts as I watch and sort of track the film and decide what I think of it. Like it, instead, it's like, and there are like 15 minute segments where I just didn't type anything. It's like, what do I need to type here? I know this scene super well, and I just yeah. kind of want to watch it. I just want to shut up and watch it. And there's nothing to write here because you know it's just it's great 15 minutes of of movie. Um, so I've got I've got fewer notes than usual, but I kind of doubt that that's going to get in the way of me talking at great length. <laughs> um, 
And I don't know if you're in the same situation or if you actually yeah, that. Yeah, basically. I haven't seen it like tons of times, but I've definitely seen it enough times that like, you know, I know the plot beats and, and I know I know the visuals and I know what's going to happen. So that actually kind of helped because, you know, it means A, I didn't have to watch the movie twice. <laughs> uh, and, and B, you know, I could just focus on like the things that stood out, you know, uh, in the context of the movie itself and not just stood out in the context of it being a horror movie just because like, you know, this movie... It is right up there with, you know, like the thing where it's just like, you know, a tier above, you know, like the average movie that we do on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's like it, it's it. It was sort of more fun to look for like the exceptional stuff in the exceptional stuff. And also just, you know, also the other thing that I noticed was just like how easily this could have been a really not good horror movie. Maybe not, like, terrible, but there was just points where, you know, like, had the thing that they did not work, you know, like, had, like, the set piece that they did or the the shot that they had or, you know, like, the lines that they did, had it just, like, you know, just slightly missed the movie, it would have, you know, it would have, enough of that would have, like, sunk the movie uh, because it, it, it just felt like the, so much of this movie was just, like, it, you know, it was, you know how they say, like, you know, something's inspired and, and um, you know, that's just like a very vague term. So a lot of the stuff was inspired, but, it, you know, if you actually watch it, you could see that, like, somebody had, like, a really good idea and everybody came together and, like, you know, made that good idea real. But had that idea not been as good as it, you know, as good as it was, they could have just spent... This could have been, you know, like Event Horizon, basically. Yeah, it could have been a a really sort of squishy, there were some neat ideas and some cool bits, but also just kind of soggy and eye-rolling and like, really? Yeah, Yeah. the, 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 the cast of the movie is great, you know, partly because it, 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 most of the acting is not very big, which I think is a big part of what makes it, like, feel legitimate as a horror story, in this case, like this really could have had some really big bluster from the characters and uh, been not surprising in that sense as a showdown with a monster in a scary context sort of thing. But it would have really taken, I think, a lot of teeth out of <laughs> and there were a lot of teeth, a lot of teeth out of uh, out of out of the horror because like the people, everybody dying in this film tends to die terrified and unheroically. Yeah. Uh, which which is so much more effective for selling this existential menace, this terrifying, you know, unknown monster than someone's like, all right, motherfucker, bring it. Um, which, you know, we see a, a bunch of in Aliens. And yeah. I, I don't think it was terrible in Aliens, but Aliens is a very different film. And the main thing is it's not really a horror film. It's an action film with a lot of, you know, horrific uh, aesthetic to it. Um, so the fact that you've got these blustery marines works better there, but it would not have would not have worked. Like, and even Ripley, uh, you know, engages in a degree of badassery in this, but it's even then very constrained. Sort of like this is someone shitting bricks and trying to do a thing they think they need to do, rather than someone like you know. Uh, saddling up and saying, "All right, motherfucker, I'm coming for you." You know, it's like, yeah, it's uh, yeah. At no point do you. At no point is Ripley trying to do anything except a her job or b trying to get out of this alive. Like she is not. I mean, you know, she she goes out of her. You know, she saves like she saves Jonesy, and you know, she'll go out of her way to do stuff. But like a lot of this movie, just 
just you know the a lot of this movie just feels like I'm just doing my fucking job. Can we please get off of this fucking rock and you know just leave? Yeah. Uh, you know. It's not like the kind of movie where, you know, somebody, you know, sets out to, like, have an adventure. It's not, you know, like the Enterprise, you know, voyaging into parts unknown to, to have adventures. It's, it's a bunch of truckers who, you know, like, are, are off of, you know, the, a stop they don't need to be off of and, you know, exploring a haunted house because apparently they have to. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Harry Dean Stanton and, uh, oh, what was the other guy's name? The two, uh, the two engineers. Uh, uh. Kane and... Uh, Shit, Parker. Um, Parker. Par- Parker is the character. Yeah, yeah. Kane and Parker. I can, rem- I can like, never yeah. remember the guy's name. It's uh, like Yasef Cohen. Oh no, no, no. Never mind. Kane is John Hurt. Brett and Parker. Yeah, yeah. Brett uh, is Harry Dean Stanton, and yeah, like you know, their whole thing is like you know they want nothing to do with anything that's happening. Yeah. And and you know, w- which is great because you know like Brett. Sur- I mean, not Brett. Uh, Parker survives very far into it, and Parker's the one who. You know, it, next to Ripley, Parker is basically the only one who is, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, do the thing you're supposed to do in that situation, which is get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, also, have, yeah, you I, seen, have, have you seen Prometheus? I have not. And ah. I think maybe that's what we should do for the next episode, because I still haven't yeah. seen it. And it would be a nice thematic tie-in here. And people on Facebook were asking about doing the franchise. And I don't feel like the franchise is something that makes us do I could see doing Alien 3 if you felt like it as well, because um, that one's still... I mean, It's, we could it's see- not a horror movie quite as much as Alien is, but it does have the sort of creeping dread that I feel like is not really there in either Aliens or, or Alien Resurrection. I've only seen it once, and I saw it, like, at the end of, like, over the course of, like, two or three days, I was watching, you know, one, two, and three, <laughs> and I, I don't remember if I was just tired of the franchise or if the movie wasn't that great, but, I, you know, I've, but if you think, you know, if you think there is, like, rewarding stuff to see in it, I'll, I, I'll definitely I, see it again. It's been, I like, think, over ten years at this point. I think there's a lot of good in Alien 3. I think it is it is rightly criticized as being kind of a mess, and, and if you read, you know, the backstory on it, you know, Fincher has had any number of things to say about why it was a mess. Didn't like a really big article just come out in some some blog? Just did, like a really so. big like yeah. why Alien Three was such a mess. Yeah, that, yeah, I, I saw that going around. I haven't read it, but uh, but yeah, I think there someone did a big long form piece on it recently. Uh, basically, it, it was a, it's a film that had a whole lot of production trouble, and the script changed, and big effect set pieces and whatnot that were supposed to be in there had to be scrapped, and they. You know, so it was over long, over budget. I think uh, William Gibson kind of had a had a shot at that script. I think maybe he did. Um, I don't remember if Joss Whedon had a hand in that one too, or if that's just a random crosswire I have. Because I think Whedon was involved in Alien Resurrection. Um, in fact, I'm sure he was involved in that. I think he may have been the one who wrote more or less the final screenplay. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it, it went through a lot of hands, and it was kind of a mess. And there was some neat stuff that just ended up disappearing because it didn't work or got written out or whatever. Um, and I think basically there's a couple of versions of Alien Three that could have existed in a different universe that would not have been nearly so criticized. Um, but I also, my personal feeling is, I think a lot of the backlash against Alien Three is it was such a come down after Aliens because people wanted, you know, the further adventures of you know Ripley in the power loader and what they got instead was like two beloved characters killed like in the opening sequence you know without like just killed in their sleep uh and then and then a really grim unfun place where everybody's just sort of terrified and terrible 
you know, and I thought it was a great sort of embrace of what I see as sort of like the existential bleakness of the 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 three films taken as a trilogy, the idea that, you know, even when you think you can fight back some, sometimes the universe is a hostile and terrifying place and the best you can do is, you know, get out on your own terms, which is essentially how Alien 3 ends with her deciding to not risk giving the the company a chance to uh, harvest her or the alien. And she says, fuck it, you know, I'm just going to jump into a, a... pit of lava here and die and kill the thing growing inside me you know which is like that's not a fun that's not a fun satisfying movie that's not a get away from her you bitch sort of finale you know and i think a lot of people just really really didn't like that that's what they got left with because it is it's super it's super grim it's super uh just sort of depressing and sad and defeatist and and you know how do you like that exactly um and so i i kind of that's that's my Part of my feeling on Alien 3 is I feel like it gets a little bit short shrift just because it's such a bummer ending uh, for what was at that point a trilogy. And I still feel kind of is a trilogy. Alien Resurrection is a film I like a lot of pieces about, but it feels even, – even with each film in the franchise being very different from the last, it still feels like it's not really – an alien movie so much as a movie that happens to have aliens in it to me. I don't know. Like an expanded universe alien movie, kinda, of just kinda, like yeah. a main. Uh, you know, yeah, if you really think about it as a, a, a an alien fan film made by the guy who made Amelie, it really makes a lot more wait, sense. That's the fourth one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Resurrection. Wait. Oh, we're talking. Uh, about yeah, Resurrection I'm saying now? Resurrection. So it kind of oh. doesn't fit in the box. I, I feel like the first three yeah. movies really are, to whatever extent they cohere, oh, okay. sort of a trilogy, and then after that, I don't think I've seen Resurrection. Oh, we, you should see it sometime. Um, see, since you own it, apparently. Yeah, uh, it's weird, but it's it, it's likable. There's a lot of things I can complain about in it. I think I have more specific like line by line complaints about that film uh, than uh, any of the first three, but uh, but it's still it's got a lot of weird charm to it. I had it. Um, I had it like you know very uh, very intensely described to me by like a fellow. What, what year did that movie come out? Like ninety eight. Oh, see it by like a, yeah. a fellow like thirteen or fourteen year old who had just <laughs> seen it. So I have some very very vivid impressions of it. How accurate they are to the actual movie, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I really should watch it. I mean, I do own it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 it's definitely worth a watch. You may you may be upset at significant portions of it, but uh, uh, but it's still it's worth seeing. Yeah, I that, that's the thing. I. I, I'm not sure how, like, I mean, I could get upset at the fact that it's a shitty movie, but, like, do, do you mean that? Or not, like, shitty or just, like, an unsatisfying movie? Or, like, upset at its, like, violation of the rules of alien canon? I, I think a big part of it is it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it's super faithful to the film canon. And, and you know, it's set 200 years in the future, and Ripley is in it as some sort of uh, clone. Clone? Uh, which and and they do some interesting stuff with that and there's 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 a great sort of laboratory scene that that's like the the closest thing to horror uh, in the film I think uh, that comes out of that and 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 Sigourney Weaver is great in it you know she does a great job but the, but most of the rest of the cast like there's a significant uh, uh, Ron Perlman and Dominique uh, Pignon especially Ron Perlman's in it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, and, I like and, and, and those two guys in particular, and I, I want to say like probably two or three other people in it too, but I don't remember exactly who all was in it, are all guys who I think of as specifically um, uh, Jean-Pierre Junot 
characters. Like, you know, again, if you if you watch Amelie, if you watch City of the Lost Children, you know, these are these are actors that will be familiar from this guy's films, being directed in ways that are familiar from this guy's films. Uh, and, and viewed through that lens, it's a really weird, interesting thing of, oh, hey, Jean-Pierre Junot made a weird, you know, science fiction horror space movie rather than what's wrong with this alien film. And it's it's two very, very different ways of watching a movie. Um, and I liked it a lot better when I came back after having seen some of his other films uh, and watched it again in that light. Cause like, oh, this is so weird, but this is what's going on here. You know, it, it plays very differently than if you're like, what happened to this franchise? Which is part of why I think of it as like its own thing, not part of the set. I think um, I met a filter like years ago. Somebody like in a in a thread about Alien. Somebody had posted it's like you know Alien Resurrection would probably be much better accepted just to, like as a film in its own rights if it wasn't like if it wasn't Alien at Resurrection it was just Jean Pierre Chinot's La Trajère or uh, yeah, however I, it is you pronounce uh, Alien in French. I, I, um, I, 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 I think that was my comment, but I was? I didn't know the French, so I said Jean Jean Pierre Chinot's. I'm alien, you know. Uh, yeah. There, well, you know, in, in my memory, your comment was... Uh, a little bit more European. Yeah. Yeah, nope. I'm, uh, I'm not that cultured. Uh, yeah. So, alien. So th- those are the other movies in the yeah. franchise. We're not going to discuss Aliens versus Predator at all. Have you seen either uh, of them? I've seen the first one. I should see the second one sometime. Do not see the second no, one. I should, Jesus. because I'm dumb. Do you, do you know what the second one is? Terrible? The second one is like... Either one alien and several predators, or or a predator and several aliens, or a couple of predators and a couple of aliens chasing two teens around a high school. I know it sounds really bad, and I, I feel it's like I should terrible. watch. It. I've read a it's, bunch of bad aliens comics, so I feel like oh, I should probably yeah. watch all the bad aliens movies. Yeah. Uh, I Alien versus Predator. I don't. I've seen it, and I don't remember anything about it, which means it can't have been too bad. It was. It was just kind of dumb and weird. It it really read like a comic book to it. It read like one of the weirder pitches that someone at Dark Horse got for an AVP. <laughs> Uh, mini theory. They got they a lot like, yeah, of mileage out of that franchise. They did. Dark they, Horse. That's a lot of a lot of money for. Them. I think that kind of made them as a as a company that like really drove their franchise business. The indiscriminate taste of the alien fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there were some fun stories in there too. A lot of it was kind of crap, but you know. I mean, yeah, uh, no, there must it. have been. A, I mean, with the amount of volume that they put out of like aliens and uh, alien, uh, alien, and then alien predator and predator stuff, just the amount of volume, there must be like some really good stuff in there. Just by yeah, statistically, that something in there's got to be great. Some of it was great. Some of it was okay. Some of it was really, really crap. But uh, there was there. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into a lengthy dissertation on the various comics I enjoyed and didn't enjoy so much. But yeah, and, and uh, okay, so we're like. We're, we're 20 minutes in the podcast here, and we've discussed Alien itself as a film for probably two minutes of that. And, and this is not a complaint. This is just – I think this is representative of what, what I was saying at, at the start, that this is not like sitting down and watching some semi-familiar or unfamiliar horror film for me. This is – there is so much of this baggage. There's so much – I've been an Alien fan my entire life. You know, I saw Aliens was the first one I saw, and I saw it when I was probably eight. And that is the – Feels like the perfect time to see that movie. Yeah, and you know, my older, the, the older of my two sisters sat me down and, and we watched it together, and 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 you know, I think she was more scared than I was. <laughs> 
but uh, but yeah, and, and so that was my introduction, and I thought they were cool immediately, and I spent the next you know ten years of my life drawing aliens all the time, and uh, and and I saw Alien a, a bit later on, and I, I've seen Aliens a bunch, and it was interesting coming to Alien after Aliens because the weird sort of uh, you know action movie growing up of the franchise from Alien to Aliens was not so obvious to me as a kid because Aliens was my my reference point. You know that was how I right. came. I to think the it's series. that way for a lot of people. I think as far as like beloved movies in the franchise, Aliens is. Like aliens, the stuff when you when you mention the franchise to somebody, I, I think the the stuff in Aliens is usually what comes up first. You know, the power loader, the alien queen, the you know, like you know, gunning down hundreds of them. The you know, the right on top of us thing. Yeah. I think all of that stuff has become like representative of the franchise for a lot of people, even though it wasn't in this one. Yeah, it's, it's a very it's a very quotable film, and Alien is not so much. I mean, there's there's things you can quote from Alien, but Alien is much more. Uh, a feel piece of a film, whereas Aliens is like, yeah, just peppered with with one-liners and 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 big set pieces and things that are really really sort of memorable. So, oh, and the th- coolest fucking thing happens sort of moments, you know. And you don't really say that about like you know when the alien uh, killed Parker and uh, uh, Veronica Cartwright's character. Um, you know, there there was nothing like big and cool and quote about it. It was just scary. It was just like a slow burn, terrifying murder in the dark. You know, and that that, that that's not the same thing as you know you know quoting you know Hicks or or Vasquez. You know, cracking off a, a good zing or whatever. Uh, so it is interesting how different the films are, and it's interesting looking at this film, knowing that there's all this franchise about it, because it, it's something that sort of struck me while I was watching Alien uh, the other night and taking these notes, is how much, like, more than anything else in the franchise, more than anything else Aliens were, how much I wish I could watch this film again not having any context. Like, just really be able to go into it completely fresh again. Because I think it's by far the most the most impressive bit of uh, slow burn presentation of sort of new ideas and new uh, imagery and aesthetics in a horror film uh, maybe I've ever seen. Like it's really, it's just chock full of amazing visuals and it really sort of drops out one little bit after another towards you while you watch it in a way that's just incredibly satisfying. And I wish I could just like get that like full bore instead of just sort of a little bit of nostalgia, nostalgia trying to see it with new eyes. Yeah, I think between this and, and and Blade Runner, like whatever the hell was going on with Ridley Scott, like the late seventies and early eighties. Holy shit! Like he, he, you know, just I mean, it's not just him, obviously, but just like the the films that he his presence was, you know, the the, the main one over were just so seminal between this and Blade Runner that it's 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 sort of amazing that they were just you know made by. You know, one person and like his team of people that he he and like the, his other people picked. Um, wait, Blade, Blade Runner's Ridley Scott, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, these two are definitely like that's that's the that's the whole Ridley Scott thing for me because Alien and Blade Runner, like either one of them would be a great film, but the, putting both of those out in the same vicinity, like that was that was a huge moment for him, and I think part of why people are so grumpy about you know his you know underwhelming other stuff he's done. Uh, you know, because I, I don't know that he's made any particularly bad films or anything. I guess it depends on how you want to define it. But but he's definitely made lots of films that don't have the same kind of potency and sort of sense of purpose and vision 
that these two films had. And, and Prometheus, was Prometheus actually, that was Ridley Scott, right? Uh, let me see. I want to say it was him. Um, oh, hang on. Where's he, the he was at least in filmography. There it is. Uh, yeah, Prometheus was him. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I remember hearing a lot of criticism about, about it that I, I haven't, again, having not seen it, I haven't really been able to put that you know into my own thoughts. But a lot of criticism along the lines of, really, this is the guy who made Alien, decided after all these years that he's going to make this? You know, this the thing is what about gonna Prometheus is, I, I saw it just a little while ago, maybe two or three months ago, for like the second or maybe third time, just because for some reason that's just like a movie. I could put, it turned it quickly turned into one of those movies where I could just put it on at any time and then go do shit, uh, you know, around the house. And then Prometheus is playing, and I'll you know I'll peek in once in a while and be like, oh yeah, there it goes. But I I, I think. Having seen Prometheus now, like an alien, really close to each other, it's sort of amazing how how much of the two movies is just him being like, "All right, I did this great thing in Alien, got a lot more money now, got much better effects now. Let's try it again, but just a little different <laughs> this time." And I, I think that might piss some people off. Or it's just like, Wait, "Is this is this a prequel? Is this a remake? Is you know?" And some of the stuff that he does in it is not as good as Alien. It is very much not as good as Alien. Um, and and it's like a lot. It's, it makes a lot less, like much, much, much less sense than Alien, just because the ideas aren't as compact. And you know, there's only so much you have to go on an Alien because, first of all, they don't know anything about it. Uh, you know, they and it's implied in in Alien that you know the human race has had contact with other sorts of aliens before because this clearly is not like a first contact with aliens ever movie because yeah. nobody nobody's particularly shocked at the fact that they just found like a uh, you know like a crashed spaceship with with stuff in it that's clearly yeah. was biological the, 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 yeah there's no constant my god this is it proves we're not yeah. alone in the Europe sort of yeah chatter yeah. Or and like you know the one person that like would have any sort of you know explanations is guarded and like completely keeping to his own agenda and definitely like it it it, it event you know it, it's eventually revealed that like it is against Ash's best interest to actually reveal any information to anybody and the way Prometheus deals with that sort of character I think is a lot more entertaining which uh, I, there's you know uh, there, there, there's an android in Prometheus and he's he's set up as an android immediately which means they get to do all sorts of wonderful things with him that I think um, you know like they do with uh, you know they set up Bishop as, as an alien it was, it's Bishop right? Yeah. In Aliens? Yeah so they set him up immediately as an android and you know you can do a lot more fun stuff if he's not like hiding out although you don't get like the great you know reveal scene that you do in this where uh you know ash slowly what happens with him does he did does she hit him and like he just then starts okay, so like this th- this is a thing and and that scene was cut a little bit in the theatrical release. This is what, something. What version did you okay, watch? I, I, I watched I watched the original 79 theatrical release. okay I watched the 2003 director's cut okay so because so, I knew you were going to watch that version yeah <laughs> Excellent, because we need to make sure that we're confused about small details. Um, yeah, I think I've seen all. I, I may have actually watched the director's cut at some point. I may have watched that when I got my hands on the the quadrilogy in the first place, because I knew I hadn't actually seen it, even though I'd seen some deleted scenes that probably constitute most of the changes. Um, I noticed it, one deleted scene because the last time I'd watched it, I watched the seventy three version, uh, seventy nine version, then I watched deleted scenes, and I re- noticed one of the um, deleted scenes reinserted, which was when uh, Ripley finds and like Mercy kills Dallas. Yeah, that's the big one. 
Um, and that actually that is a shorter version than the actual full length thing. Apparently, I, I, I was reading up on uh, Ridley Scott's notes on the the director's cut, and yeah, he had actually cut it longer than the actual 2003 cut, and then decided it was too long and pulled some stuff back out. So I think the director's cut is actually like a minute shorter than the 79 theatrical cut because he added that scene and added some things, but he also cut a few other things for time. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the differences in cuts, and these are like, you know, these are cuts between like five and ten seconds. Yeah. But um, it, it, it's funny. It's a huge it, – that that scene, that, that, that scene with uh, Parker I, – I, I think it was – well, okay. It was, it was Dallas and, and maybe Brent. Maybe Dallas and Brent. Anyway – yeah, find finds them sort of cocooned, and they're 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 like transforming into eggs. I think was the thing that was happening in that scene, which totally rewrites like the basis of the the ecosystem of of the aliens as established uh, later on in Aliens and 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 so on. And, and it's funny because like it's such a pivotal decision that at the time probably more just came down to ah, I'm not sure this scene works. Let's cut it. Uh, and so then bringing back afterwards is kind of like, oh, by the way, uh, Albert Einstein was a Cylon the whole time, and he was planning <laughs> to destroy the world with the atom bombs. Um, but then he got reprogrammed. But we cut that for time, so instead he, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a weird big, I remember finding out about that scene. Wait, what, how do they make the, the, the what, what's the canon version of how the eggs come about? The canon version is what we see in Aliens, where there's a, a hive queen who actually, you know, has an ovipositor and, and lays the eggs. So she generates the eggs uh, and deposits them in a nest, and that's where the eggs come from. Oh, so they're, uh, what do you call it, the... Uh, non the, the eggs are not the product of sexual reproduction. Presumably not. Yeah. Right. And it's the more, yeah, it's really just the, the the face hugger to xenomorph thing is as close as they get to sexual reproduction. Yeah. So the queen lays the eggs. The eggs hatch. The face huggers. Face huggers uh, inseminate the host organism. The horse organism uh, gives birth, as you will. Uh, to the chestburster, which is just the larval form of the full-size alien. And the host well, organism contributes its DNA to the... Yes, apparently. Because, yeah, I think it's eventually it's developed in the canon that, like, uh, what do you call it, eggs laid in different species lead to, you know, like, slightly different xenomorphs. Yeah, like the alien in Alien 3 is a smaller, leaner, quicker one that was born out of, like, you know... A dog, I think? dog, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because originally there were supposed to be oxen in Alien 3, and I think there was going to be a big old oxen alien, but I'm not entirely sure of the details there. They played with that a bunch in the comics, too. They're like, you know, you would have the idea of this adaptation to the host organism. Uh, and then you get the pred alien, yeah. which, you know, like the, the, the inevitable <laughs> we're, we're not merging even, of the franchise. We're just not even going to talk about it. We're not even going to talk about it. Uh, yeah, so 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 in the original Alien screenplay, you have them just being sort of the captured dudes being just sort of gestated into eggs by some sort of morphological process that was you know totally asexual and, and totally. Well, it, it looks like the xenomorph just like craps out like Geiger design and just plasters a wall with it. Yeah, it it, it just extrudes. You know, it would like his. It, it, it just like extrudes Geigerian Ge- like design patterns basically, and like sticks you into it, and then it's it, it's sort of amazing how how th- that's one of the things I think that could have gone just so wrong, which was like the the 
the um, what do you call it? The use of uh, Giger's design as a as an aesthetic, where his his design is just like it's it's not like most of it. It's not represent. It, it's it's surreal art. It's not supposed to be representative of like a thing happening in a place the way that you know you have things happening in a place in this movie and I think that could have gone so wrong in that just like so many thing other things that he's done have gone wrong uh, have you ever played those video games that were based on his uh his design, I don't remember what they were called. There was two of them. Uh, PC I, I, Adventure I, Games. Yeah, I, I, I know of at least one of them. Um, yeah, and that was, you know, not not great, you know, not great, you know, integration of his design. But in this one, like, they, they just between him and, like, everybody else making the movie, it, it, it worked. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, somehow the, the design balance worked out really well because his aesthetic influence on the film is huge. Yeah. But it's also just part of the aesthetic of the film. And the contrast between his really, really organic uh, uh, alien and, and, and crash ship design stuff versus the really nicely done sort of industrial uh, – Sort of coldness and crapitude of the yeah. I mean, it, it was yeah. The Nostromo just looks like it. I mean, it's the the idea for it is wonderful, which is that you know you like you take your you know somewhat realistic like ideas of what a spaceship should look like from something like you know uh, two thousand one, where you know it's going to be cramped. There's going to be like you know. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be functional above everything else. You know, it's not going to look like the Enterprise. It's going to be, you know, it's a, it's a truck in space. And then you you take like the that sort of like the the sort of you know like the pre micro electronics you know design aspects of it from like two thousand one, and then you just make it into a piece of crap. You just age it. You make this thing used and old. And, um, you know, maintain, but not like nobody's like making sure the walls are still painted white completely, except in a couple of rooms, yeah. you know, stuff's rusted over the, it, it looks like a big basement. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that was just, just the, the, the difference between that, between just like, you know, that, that like patina of just like Asian use on it versus, you know, like the, uh, the, everything, like all of the, the, uh, what do you call it? The, the the crash ship and like any part of the alien, which just there, there's like this weird like eternal feeling to it. Like even before like everything was fossilized, it probably still looked very much like that. Yeah, yeah. The idea that that that, that ship, the 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 space jockey's ship, uh, as he's referred to in the the literature. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, 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 I, I was. Uh, as a kid, I was always never like totally clear how much of that was that was the ship and how much of that was aliens. And at this point, I, I feel like the intention is for it to, that's just the look of the ship, and that's yeah. a very specific sort of organic seeming aesthetic of that race. Because there's not really there's not really an alien infestation in that crash ship. There was uh, clearly some chestburster involved that that, that killed the I mean thing, it, it, it seemed to have been just transporting the eggs and one got free I think was yeah, the implication yeah something something like that happened uh, and there's actually some of the better little weird one-off comics Dark Horse published dealt with like little aspects of that in, in sort of fun ways but uh, they also tied the space jockey into the big uh, alien book one uh, thing they, which I really like. Uh, it was like a four or five or six issue miniseries I got out of a graphic novel at some point as a kid. Um, that sort of said, okay, well, what happens after Aliens? And this was before Alien Three came out, um, and 
messed with the canon. Uh, and so it's like, you know, Newt and Hicks are, are, you know, alive and both living shitty, broken, post-traumatic lives, uh, you know, 20 years later or, or 15 years later. And then they end up sort of going back. Uh, and in the meantime, aliens uh, – or, or they, they get back together anyway. Uh, and I, it's been a while since I've read it. It, it. it should be clear from all my stumbling. But aliens come to Earth as well. And then the <laughs> space jockey, another one of them, is there as well. And the big twist turns out to be that the space jockey is actually using the alien just as a terraforming uh, presence. Um so, so they, they, they go and find the space jockey. Alien, you know, Newt and Hicks go and find the space jockey or one of the space jockeys and bring him back to Earth thinking, I guess, thinking that they're going to get help out of that. And it turns out that the space jockey is delighted because, oh, hey, here's a planet I can totally harvest. And he's willing to use the aliens themselves as a, as a tool to that end. So it, it creates this much more cynical take on the space jockey as, you know, someone who is not some mysterious, poor, killed alien. But that's the thing. I think once you find out what exactly they're transporting, there's no... The, the, the amount of, like, technology it's implied that the space jockeys have, that they can, like, keep the alien eggs in stasis, I think there's at least some implication there that if that, whatever that race wanted, if they wanted to destroy all those eggs in their possession, they would have. Yeah. And, but so they're clearly not. they've got some they're, sort of commercial interest in that, which yeah, is... Yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely trouble, taking them somewhere, and they're preserved and, like, intact. Yeah. Which is, you know, there's, there's a... Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there, there's always been, like, an implication of whatever the space jockeys are up to, it's probably not good. Yeah, it's probably not great. Uh, also, this never really occurred to me, because uh, until just, you know recently and I don't understand why but that thing like the 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 console that the space jockey is sitting at that's just a huge cock it, it never like struck me as much as it did when I watched it last <laughs> night but I'm just like that's you know that's not even yeah it's not even like subtle it's just like one of his things where there's a big cock in the painting oh, and there's um, the whole vaginal yeah entrances and yes the man the man sure liked his uh, genitals uh, yes surreal sexualized uh, horror aesthetic you know, I've been to a uh, a Giger themed bar. Well, it's not really a Giger themed bar. It's just a metal bar that happens to have like a back room that is very, very Gigery, and it's um, it's. I have to say, it's slightly less terrifying in person because uh, you know, you know, when you just like see it there, it's for some reason it it is less cool than when you see it like on a screen. Yeah, th- I, I feel like his stuff really, really does well in Alien, partly because. You know, it, it's not it's not just glimpses. I mean, you get you get a good eyeful of stuff at times, but still, you've got a limited amount of ability to take a close look at it. And it's all lit really well, and the films all processed really well. And so, it just the image really just looks fantastic and creepy on the screen in a way that I feel like walking around a model would not. And you know, that, that's one of the things that this movie does really well with the alien. And part of why the alien worked so well is you don't see a whole lot of it. You know, it no, really they do a good job of keeping you sort of like wondering what the fuck you're looking at and you don't get I think until the very very last scene you don't get more than like 10 seconds of it at a time and you only get like maybe four or five of those shots yeah so it's it's, it's great it's great in that it keeps it like like I can't not know that it's a guy in a rubber suit uh but right. 
but they did a really good job of not making it obvious. Although I think I I, it, I, I think the, the one scene where it just sort of really really betrays the fact that it's that it's a dude in rubber suit is like the jazz hands moment. When um, I, who was it? Re- it was reaching out to get Parker or uh, no, possibly it, Dallas. It, I think. it was Dallas. Yeah, that's it was that's Dallas. I think when and, Dallas buys it in the in the ducts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he he briefly illuminates it with um, I think it was his flamethrower, right? What, yeah, what think, is it about the late a late seventies and like flamethrowers as being a uh, generally like you know um, what do you call it? general use weapon? Well, it's because flamethrowers are are totally sweet. Is, well, that is that is that's just totally fucking sweet. The, um, the the array of weaponry on that ship made you know made very little sense. Like, all right, we've got five flamethrowers, two guns, and a cattle prod. Well, I think the idea is that it wasn't really weaponry. Like, you know, they're they're not they weren't a fighting crew. The flamethrowers were like incinerator units. You know, which is <laughs> you know I, I don't know for cleaning out stuff or whatever. The cattle prod. Who knows why the cattle prod was there? That was probably somebody something. brought that cattle prod. Brett just really likes having a cattle prod around. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. And you know the, that part, and also um, Ash being like, "Oh yeah, I rigged up this motion scanner." I'm thinking like, out of what? A different kind of scanner, or did he just like you know walk around the ship like grabbing random parts off stuff and then just cobbled it together into a uh, micro uh, changes in air density scanner? Well, and I, I think I think Ripley was kind of calling bullshit on the micro yeah. changes in air density. Thing. Yeah. I I, I want to. I would need to like look at the script. One thing about this film is. There, there, there's something. Uh, yeah, no, she definitely does say micro changes in air density. My ass. Yeah, like, like like she she knows that Ash is pulling some sort of bullshit, and and that the fact that he rigged this up is maybe sort of like him saying, "Oh yeah, I didn't have this the whole time because part of my plan for this mission was to capture an alien," you know, which would fit with the whole undertone constantly throughout. Well, see, he, he had the scanner, but he just couldn't get the theremin he hooked up to it working, <laughs> and then eventually it was just like, see. Woo. Oh, All right, why, there we why, go. I wired this backwards. That, that's the problem. <laughs> it was only making noise when something wasn't near. <laughs> I, I want to say one of the one of the things that. Uh, oh, jeez, there's so much to say. So, uh, the design of the ship. We were talking about sort of the aesthetic of the ship, and and one one comparison I would make is I feel like the the Nostromo uh, looks like what Red Dwarf would look like if Red Dwarf had not been a comedy and had had a budget. And I don't know if you've watched yeah. Red Dwarf. Yeah, right? I have. Okay. I've seen most of it. It seems like that, that that's kind of the closest thing I can think of in terms of a similar like industrial I, setting. But yeah, you know, I think the um that that was that that's like the the thing about like having money and making like an industrial looking thing to your sci fi stuff is that if you don't have enough money, you go too big. And it looks like have you seen Space Mutiny? I don't think I have. It's um, oh wait no, that's, 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 it like, was an MST3K thing. It was an actual movie, but like the, the the you know it's only really worth watching with MST3K. But it's just you know about a mutiny on a uh, generation ship. That's um, the one with but, beef large huge. Yes, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah the the uh, stank bone flank one. And, yeah, you know the names one. And yeah, most of like the, uh, for some reason that ship just has a giant like multi-story industrial <laughs> basement that's clearly like a factory somewhere in South Africa where they shot it. And I think you know the same thing with like Red Dwarf. It's like it's clearly a studio set. That's why like the ceilings are you know normal size instead of like in this where you know if you stand up you know too fast in the wrong space you'll hit your head because it's 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 going to be cramped it's not yep you know it's not, you're not going to have vaulted ceilings in your you know spaceship uh, unless you're incredibly rich 
which these people aren't. You know, this is a truck. It's got a cabin. You know, it's got, uh, you know, like the, the the amount of places like in that in Nor- you know even the ship without the uh, without the cargo thing attached to it still really big fucking ship. And even figuring that, there's very little places for people to actually be. The rest of it is just you know whatever the uh, electronics and yeah. the uh, the uh, the engine stuff and all the, yeah, I the, think, uh, the refinery processing stuff. Right, right. Oh, do they did, were they doing were they. Were they? Ju- I I thought they were just hauling the. Ore. I, I think were there was an implication that there was harvesting also some, it. That, that they also had some. Well, I don't know if they were harvesting, but I think there may have been an implication of like refinery, like machinery on the ship. Right. So like they might just be picking it up, but then it goes into the. Yeah, I mean, I guess refinery. if you have the time, you might as well just shoot the whole refinery into space, and then by the time it gets back, everything will be done. Yeah, if it has and you'll to, have thrown out all of your waste into space, so you wouldn't have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. But in any case, uh, the other thing I want to say is like the Red Dwarf thing sort of jumped on. But the other thing is what you already touched on, which is like 2001 and the sense of like like 2001 did a tremendous job of sort of taking a serious shot at like the aesthetics of like, you know, future space travel and, and whatnot. Like that, that film was so remarkable in part for how much Kubrick sat down and did this design work and did this serious thinking about like let's make it look not like some laser blaster serial let's make it look like literally what you know I'm going to imagine a spaceship might look like in 50 years as a practical piece of equipment and a, and a space and, and and so I feel like this film definitely owes a ton to 2001 in terms of some of the aesthetic sensibility that we see come out in the design of the Nostromo um, but at the same time it's doing a, a very different thing and it does feel a lot more uh, dirtied up and, and sort of real feeling than, than the very sort of pristine feel of Kubrick's sets. Like, it feels like Ridley Scott saw that, thought that it was amazing, and said, okay, but let's really grease monkey this thing up and make it look like it's being used uh, for, you know, dirty work rather than uh, executive shuttles. Um, but then there, you, there's these little touches. Basically, I, I think there's a really interesting relationship there, and I think there's a lot of little bits of interesting relationship between this film and 2001 that, that show Ridley Scott, you know, really, really must have seen 2001 a lot and thought about it a lot and been influenced by it. Um, but, uh, but then there's the mother room. Yeah. And, and that, is, that is one of the things in the film that always strikes me as a little bit silly, just the design of it. It's. I mean, it's. It's almost exactly like the uh, toward the end of two thousand one, where they go to deactivate Hal and they go into that room with all the, uh, yeah. the circuit boards. It's. It's that, but just way too seventies. Yeah, like the, it, that is like the the most like even considering like all the console electronics to be like eh, you know what they if they really cheaped out. That that's that's what it would look like the console electronics, but that mother room was just like the most like like it might as well have had a shag carpet in it. Honestly, it was it was just that seventies looking and, it's just and um, coated in blinking lights. Yeah, and with like a couple of screens that you would have to you know like you. you it makes if you mount screens in like a three hundred and sixty degree degree thing going out, that makes sense. You you don't mount the screens 300 degrees around a person sitting in a room at a console you there you know you would put the screens in one place yeah and have a bunch of them and the light, and, and like the idea that there is some specific utility to those lights even though it's a giant no, undifferentiated spears you know there, there can't possibly it, be it's, yeah. it, it's the star trek original series ist 
<laughs> it's the, it is the design most element in the film most resonant with the the, the cheap, dumb cornball design of the original series of Star Trek. Basically, it, it stands out to me as just an incredibly sort of like, hey, that's that's what you do with computers. And it's it, I have to kind of remind myself as well because the whole design of that room, the idea that you'd have this dedicated room just to sit down at a terminal. And and type with this computer instead of just having like a secure login from any workstation or whatever. Right. You know the whole thing feels weird. Well, that's the mainframe room. That's you know that that was there. Uh, what you know, and at that point they were like computers were still just like the it was it was the mainframe and the uh, what do you call it the terminals right that's yeah. and computing that, was still at that point there and i guess like there's some things you can only do from the mainframe well and and, and that, that that's part of like it, it's interesting to me i have to remind myself that this was 1979 and the thinking about the scaling and relationship to serious computers had to have been significantly different then than it is you know now you know and my, my whole life I've lived with the ongoing miniaturization of personal computers and the, the move away in general experience from even that idea that a computer was a big industrial machine. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I have, to sort of, I have to sort of think of it in those terms and remind myself that, okay. Maybe that's what, like, the rest of the ship is, just vacuum tubes and cable as big around as your arm. Maybe, yeah. I mean, that, that's what fills the rest of the ship. Yeah, there, there could be that implication. Well, or at least that, like, the surrounding room around Mother might yeah. be, like, a you know, 20 by 20 by 20 cube of the computer uh, or something like that. But there's this, there's, there becomes a sort of almost like the, the conception of like talking to mother and, and dealing with the computer as this sort of rarefied this experience. Like it's like, uh, like sort of like a temple for computing that, that. Just- yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that really was what it felt like. You know, you're initiated into the mysteries and you can go in and you can ask, what's the story mother. And then you, you, you find out what the truth is. It was, um, I, I, I think it's, it's just the, the idea of it comes from just like a different type of mythos than like sci-fi space trucking kind of thing. And, and the execution of it, it all, you know, is almost coming from a, a, a different movie made by you know a much less talented crew. Yeah, it, it, um, it feels it feels weirdly because and and I still I like the idea that it sets up this idea of mother as this sort of uh, other uh, other, uh, <laughs> oh. but, but but yeah, mother is very much set off as this antagonist in the film eventually as it comes across, but in a very sort of cold and and kind of minor way. I mean. Uh, in this film, the 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 female non-human that Ripley calls a bitch is the computer instead of the alien queen. Uh, but you know, it's it's a much much smaller sort of like lower visibility antagonism compared to like the alien queen showdown in the right. third act of Aliens, obviously. Uh, and I kind of wonder, like, uh, and that's one thing I don't remember if there's if there was originally more of Mother in the script. Or not, because it really feels like it's being set up as sort of like this hostile computer thing, and we get a bit of that in the movie, but not a whole lot of it. It seems like they could have almost committed more to that if they really. Wanted I mean, like to. the big reveal is just that, like when Ripley does like the one, like the one password override to the top secret instructions, which seems unlikely that she would have a had that <laughs> password the whole time and didn't do anything about it because she's pretty like you know she well at that point she does what she, she needs to do at that point I think she's a commanding officer so. Did, I mean, was there like a little envelope under her desk that she opens, like the passwords oh oh five three seven? I, I, oh, I think mother would, yeah. mother could just tell. I guess maybe it had been registered that she was yeah. the commanding officer at that point or something. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. 
Also, there was a scene like really early in the beginning where Ripley is just like staring at one of the console screens that's just displaying zeros and ones. That that's got to be a screensaver. <laughs> that that there's no way that could be useful information that's being conveyed in like an entire screen of zeros and ones that it changes every like two seconds or yeah, so. No, it's just that's that's how you that's how you do uh, signal decoding in in the future, I guess. Yeah, she could read the matrix. Well, and you know all of all of all of the the interface stuff in the film is kind of cheesy oh, and, and I, I don't even want to say cheesy actually I, I appreciate that it wasn't so cheesy it's all it's all nonsensical for the most part like the closest thing to an actual functioning interface we see is the the cuts to the uh, sort of sideways topographic vector uh, yeah, that view one of the landscape the, uh, and landing the the what do you call it the 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 one that went with that one that just showed the squares as to, you know, how to position the ship to land it. Yeah. Like, that was the thing that made sense. Maybe only because I've seen so many of those in so many training <laughs> stages of video games where it's like, all right, before you get into the airplane, you got to go through all these circles. Yep. Uh, and it just felt like that. But, yeah, like... But at least it, the, felt like, it, felt, it felt like it was, like, supposed to be functional information and right. it wasn't laughably bad or anything. Yeah. Ashes, uh, like, Ashes screens, you know bordered on you know when you when you realize that he he's an android like it would have it makes a little more sense that he was just like staring at and at just like a column of constantly changing like five digit numbers and being like oh i see this there's uh there's nitrogen in in the atmosphere um you know when but before that it's just like how is he you know why wouldn't it just say it in words you know what are these numbers because it's just like two rows of numbers of like five digit numbers and that's it um, which was, yeah, like, it, it's weird how, how the displays, like, you know, just varied between, like, looking like they're conveying useful information and clearly not conveying useful yeah. information. At all. But at least they were relatively understated, which I, yeah. I appreciated it, you know. And they looked cool, and it was 1979. And they were all so bright as to yeah. reflect on the faces of people looking at it. I am annoyed, I am annoyed every time a film has a clear yeah. image of what's coming out of a CRT <laughs> on someone's face. It's, no, it's a fucking diffuse glow. You well, yeah, sons no, of bitches. That's the, that's the thing. In in the future, like the biggest workers' comp claim for uh, space truckers is burnt out retinas. Yeah, from all the lasers that they're apparently <laughs> shooting at you constantly. <laughs> I did like that in the opening sequence of the film with the the, the ship starting to wake up. Mm-hmm. They instead reflected it off an actual helmet because yeah. it was like, yes, that works. You're actually shooting. It's glass. The image of that. So yes, I was okay yeah. with that. But at one point, there was definitely uh, on. Uh, Veronica Cartwright's character, there was a little bit of like uh, a Vectrix game. Cartwright, over the course of the movies, her eyes grew like maybe twice the size, and like the blue in them deepened about like three shades. I don't know what's going on there. Her character really significantly uh, uh, lost it, which was which was good. I mean, she went from being sort of like slightly you know terse and sarcastic. Uh, what was her? She was she was comms. What what was her role in the ship? Maybe yeah, I don't know. Because because Ripley was a was Ripley was an officer, right? Yeah. I, I'm trying to figure out what everybody's like job was. Like uh, Brett. And I, I feel like Ripley was the, in comm stuff too, though. So I don't know. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Maybe Veronica was the God. What is her damn character name? Uh, um, Lambert. Lambert. Yeah, she was a. Uh, um, she might have been navigation. Lambert. Oh yeah, no. Because they had that pissy conversation early yeah. on, where Ripley's like, "It's not our system." She's like, "I know." And then what, what about uh, what the hell was his name? Uh, yeah, Kane. What was Kane doing? Uh, was Kane the bi- Kane wasn't the biologist or anything? I don't know. I'm not sure. 
I don't know why they would even have a biologist per se. I think it might have just been another. That might have just been all the science officer's job. I think maybe yeah. they didn't have biologists because it's so rare that they would actually encounter anything biological. That like a science officer makes sense. Like, oh, hey, we got you know, we found a new kind of comet or something. Yeah. It's like, well, well honestly, one of the things I like about the film is that they didn't bother making that something we had to really care about. I mean, we knew Dallas was in charge. We knew Ripley was a subordinate officer. Uh, we knew Parker and Brent were sort of uh, grease monkeys who were bitter about it. And that's about all we needed. Like, there was no need to say, but my God, man, you're the comms officer. You know, like, none of that bullshit came into it. They were just these people on this crew, and then shit started going bad. You know, and that was sufficient. You know, it didn't need to be something where there was some... <laughs> there wasn't a damage gym moment. Yeah, exactly, you know. Um Another thing on the Kubrick thing... That was like, a shitty captain, by the way. Yeah. Really, just one mistake after another. He was not... I, I think he's a captain, not like in the, like, I am assigned, like, the role of captain to be, to, you know, like, be in charge of everybody because I deserve it. But it's like, I have been assigned the role of captain because I guess that's what I'm good at. I'm not really good at anything I've, else. I've been here shows. 10 years and I got a promotion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, and honestly, if there's not a fucking thing with an alien, then it's like, whatever. You know, we go, we come back, it's fine. I'm the captain. He's the said, engineer go that the got promoted to project managing, even yeah. though he knows nothing about project management. Also, and t- really. It's it, it's Tom Skerritt in this, and I every time I see Tom Skerritt in this, I can't help but think like, do you think he and Chris Christopherson ever have like fist fights over their beards? <laughs> like it's just I want to see the two of them in a row, just like acting at each other beardily, you know, from from like you know late seventies, early eighties. Uh, Kenny Loggins presiding over it with a scepter. I will, Wait, Kenny Loggins had the beard. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I, I have no idea what Kenny Loggins looks like. Um, I think he's got a beard. Sure. What am I? What the? Who the hell am I thinking? Kenny of? Rogers has a beard. No, Kenny Loggins definitely is gay. He's got like a beardy beard. He's got like oh, a, he's got like a big like uh like biker beard, right? Not that big, no? but it's it's definitely he's he's got beard. I'll have to. I'll just have to. I'll have to look up Kenny Loggins. Beard Let me see later. Chris Christopherson because I I can't uh, uh I can't picture him. Off the top of my head, he's he, he, like, oh, he's take, got basically that same yeah, beard. Take take Tom Skerritt and then like sharpen all of his features, <laughs> and you've got Chris Christopherson basically. Like 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 if you took Tom Skerritt on one end and Jurgen Prochnow on the other, and they had some sort of weird bearded baby, I think you'd sort of get Chris Christopherson. <laughs> uh, maybe a little Edward James almost in there too. Um, I want to go back to the Kubrick thing because because. The Kubrick thing really was hitting me mostly in the intro, the, the, the early scenes of the movie. Oh, the, um, the long take of the uh, of just like going around the ship and the ship doing stuff by itself. Yeah, and especially the, the, the or not doing the, stuff. The, the the pod opening shot when when oh, yeah, they all yeah. look up. It's got the 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 lights come up and then the and it's a real symmetrical shot. And the, the, the pod doors all come up slowly and see. Oh yeah, and it's got and, like the central point of perspective, like a. Uh, was, was is that what that was? Yeah, yeah, and and, and there's this, uh, this these filigrees, like these woodwind filigrees in the soundtrack in, in in this, you know, and the whole thing felt like kind of like like Kubrick, but let's go indoors for this sort of feeling, you know, compared to 2001. And there's also a couple slow shots with like when they we're taking the they're taking the craft down to LV 426, and they really sort of take it slow and gentle with like panning shots and, and movements of the ship that also really yeah, felt I, like... Yeah, I noticed that. That was that was a really good way... Like, that was another one of those things where if they fucked it up, it would look terrible because like the entire 
almost the entire like shots of the ship descending to the surface are just like very slow kind of shaky pans across the surface of the ship that don't move very far but the fog does move so you get the 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 idea of motion without them actually having to do much yeah and that was another one of those things that like it was it was just on the border of not working but it worked and it yeah. and, and it worked good and it doesn't take you out of the movie when you see it. I think it's really interesting uh it, that that whole sequence with them taking the ship out and going down to the planet um especially the opening part of it uh it's such a strong contrast to essentially the same thing happening in aliens and handled completely differently like the the dropship the, the dropship it is such a like like pointedly violent, but hey, everything's going to be okay. Sort of sequence, uh, the way it's handled from the moment it releases from the ship, like it that that ship fucking shoots out of the Sulaco, you know, down towards the atmosphere, and it's immediately a giant fucking like roller coaster hell ride. And in this, it's like it's like what you would kind of actually expect, which is. You know, if there was um if there was like a dude on the ground just like making the motions like behind them when you're parallel parking it's like no a little more a little more stop 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 no okay a little more this way okay you're good lower it down it was it was almost exactly like that yes yeah. so the, the contrast of of the same basic concept being played out in the two films and being handled so differently I, that almost feels like the one one of the best like uh Examples of the whole difference of feeling from Alien to Aliens in the in the way it's directed. Like Aliens is so sort of loud and brash and jarring and whatnot, uh, just as a matter of course. It seems like whereas Alien does a lot of stuff with slowness and stillness. Even during the scary fucked up parts, a lot of them are still very slow burn scenes, slow camera moves, slow moving uh, point of view. Yeah, Alien tends to move slowly. Uh, and yeah, and, and I think the thing about the franchise that works is that there's nothing, there's nothing that violates the 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 idea of the movie that these two ships should be so different and exist in the same universe. Because there's no, you know, like there's no reason for this big space truck to have to have the functionality to land in a place where there's not like a good space for it. Just like the way with like a regular truck, there's no reason you would like generally like take a regular truck like off-road if you're shipping stuff like you might be able to do it but it's going to be difficult and it's going to be a pain in the ass and you'll probably fuck it up like they did in this but you know if you've got like a military dropship yeah that thing needs to land anywhere and quickly um and and you know those two things like work with you know we just there's no conceptual like there's no big disconnect between the two kinds of ships within the universe of the movie yeah I feel like I feel like the actual violent ejection of the dropship and aliens seemed sort of nonsensical to me, but maybe that was a good explanation for it. But yeah, but in general, yeah, I like that it sort of works thematically with the two films that they approach these things differently. But it, it does draw. It's interesting what a close parallel narratively those two scenes are that it draws such a clear distinction between the way it's handled uh, right. from one film to the next. Uh, bu- 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 did you know? Did they ever actually? I, I, I could I, maybe I didn't catch it or something. Did they ever actually explain why, like, they had that big, like, why the ship got fucked up after they landed it? They didn't really, and it looked like to me the suggestion was maybe they just got that one leg landed accidentally on a rock, and so it lurched when they finally just sort of settled down, uh, and so there's a sudden jarring uh, realignment of the ship, and that was just enough to throw some shit around and break some stuff. Uh, but yeah, they didn't really say it; just sort of happened. And and all we saw on screen, at least in the '79 cut, all we saw on screen was the the 
feet of the ship sort of coming down and, and one of the tripod uh, toes of one of the landing feet was definitely on a big boulder that then crushed. You know, I, I'm, either I missed that or they cut that Maybe out of the they director's cut. cut. It, it, it's not super convincing in the, the theatrical cut, so the, they've just cut that the, to leave it like, oh shit, something went wrong. Yeah, the without- 2003 one, it opens with just like Ridley Scott sitting there in, you know, a saying like, it's like, you know, we, we added in some stuff. And then we also took out some stuff because like, you know, 30 years later it, or 25 years later, it just really doesn't look as good as as, as it did then, which got really obvious because all of like the scenes where they're, where they're you know, in the mother console room, they did not have displays. They didn't have the ability to make a display like that in 1979. I don't think it looked. It was like jarringly different. Than, Interesting. I should, yeah, I and although you know what, I never actually rewatched the 79 version to make sure I'm right about that. But yeah. Also, um, the 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 hyper sleep chambers. Absolutely, Snow White's coffin from the Snow White movie. One hundred percent. Like the recent one. No, no, no! The original but, one. Like I, I, like I, I'm looking at, at photos of our, you know, screenshots of that scene on Google Image Search right now. It's the exact same object. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I've got a pile of notes here. I'm trying to sort through what we, we uh, already sorted. There is the whole we that we first see these people uh, in a sort of man-made con- cocoon, which we get a little bit of thematic continuity uh, yeah. in the long run with people being cocooned in aliens and and technically an alien. If you got the the that scene restored, uh, which I hadn't really thought about it before, but yeah, it is kind of a it's a nice. I, I think uh, Angela pointed out when we were watching it. Um, it's also hard not to read that slow crawl under the uh, across the underbelly of the Nostromo in the beginning, uh, in the context of Star Wars, which I'm not sure if that could have actually been influenced by Star Wars at the time because this was '79. Star Wars. 76. Was it early 76? I think A New Hope was... Give me one sec. Star, this is why we need a producer. Yeah. Oh, 77. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that, that, so, that, that, that could have been yeah, a direct, he definitely had time. direct reference to that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I really like the title sequence. I always like that super minimal title with the line-by-line segments. Kind oh, of your words. Yeah, it's like alien does not occur to you as a word that you could build almost symmetrically. And yet, you know, that thing is really symmetrical going in, which which is great just because it looks like a design feature even when you know what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that the title sequence is great. But although uh, <laughs> because it begins with just like that middle eye, there's a point on the screen where it just says like, I, Tom Skerritt. <laughs> So yeah, one of Asimov's uh, lesser-known works. Uh, <laughs> Three primary rules of Tom Skerritt: do not endanger the beard. Um, avoid Chris Christopherson. Um, you know what I just realized? I so there is this comes up once in a while. I think this is one of those points where it's coming up. But there's like a there's I think what you're about five years older than I am, or so. What year were you born in? Uh, Seventy nine. Seventy nine. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're five years older than I am, which means you. You and I watched it different, like Saturday morning cartoons, and the ones that yeah. I was watching. You were probably, you know, with the ones I was watching at eight, you were thirteen, four, and that might have been too old. But like, you know, I grew up on stuff. stuff. Um, exactly. You know, what is it? Uh, Tiny Toon Adventures, uh, Animaniacs, well, Freakazoid. I, I do. My 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 little brother is four years younger than me, so oh. to some extent, I, I got tied back into that pop culture loop just because you know we were pretty close. Growing up, and, and so okay. we got a little bit of slop over there. So, like yeah, Tiny Toons Adventure, I watch a bunch of with him. The the alien aesthetic is 
really deeply embedded in those shows. Like, really deeply. Not one of the... Though each of those shows have had, like, a handful of just, like, xenomorphs or just, like, direct shots from Alien in them. And I had encountered... And because it was weird to just, like, have those shows be the shows that I started watching when I, you know, started developing an idea of things... You know, just when I just started becoming, you know, like a conscious human being and not, you know, a, a toddler or whatever, because I was, you know, about six years old, five, six years old when I started watching that. And so, you know, I watched all of these like super, super referential shows without ever catching the references to the extent that like I would that really there has been numerous times, including like the alien movies, where I would go back to watch like the source material of something that I had a really, really good idea of, and, like, I could tell you what would happen in the movie throughout most of the movie without ever having seen it, just because I've seen so many things that refer to it. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, like, the, the I think my fondness for, like, the Alien franchise and for Alien and, you know, for the ideas and it comes from that, and um, Star Wars, it would to take this back to Star Wars, Star Wars is the same way, where I just watched so much stuff that was so referential to Star Wars that I knew exactly what it was about and what would happen and who the characters were long before I'd seen it. Um, and so, yeah, and that's also another franchise that I am very deeply fond of, even though um, it's so inconsistent and just, like, on the whole, not, like, the actual, you know, the actual things that take stories that take place in it that you know are books or 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 comic books are generally not great i just have a big fondness for that um just because i grew up with it even though i did not actually grow up with it i grew up with somebody talking about it and at at length and you know liking it a lot yeah yes Uh, there, there. Okay, so there's a, a line that uh, jumped out at me. I think I noticed this for the first time watching it. Here is at one point, uh, Ash is saying something, and Parker's interrupting him. This is early on in the film, and and Ripley uh, snaps Parker, or, or maybe it was Dallas. One one of them uh, says, "Parker, will you just listen to the man?" But they're talking about Ash, and Ash isn't really a man. Oh my God, it's a little bit of a yeah. Uh, there's a couple lines in the film that like border on being cute if you think that they were trying to be cute. It's like, oh, okay, that's kind of cute. Um, even though it's not delivered in like, Parker, will you just listen to the man? You know, like, <laughs> I like that the dialogue in the film is almost like, I, it's, it's fairly naturalistic. You know, it's, I think I, I, I say Altman esque a lot on this podcast just talking about dialogue that doesn't annoy me. But, uh, but you know, the, the, the dialogue is not mixed super loud in this film for the most part. You know, it's not presented as big dramatic oration. It's just well, people mostly the, talking and shit. Yeah, there's, there's the entire scene that takes place in, like, the basement where Ripley is just, like, dressing down Brett and Parker. And you can hardly hear their conversation over just, like, the industrial noise. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and yeah, like, it, even when they're not intentionally trying to make it impossible to hear, it's still something you have to strain a little bit to hear and people mutter and people say stuff that sounds like you know they're more losing their temper than they're delivering a killer line or anything and, and I really like that in general but it it lends a lot of the feeling of these are people in over their head rather than action heroes uh, to, to to the film right um, also I had forgotten what a, a nice like super fucking pretty planet moons uh, matte painting they had for LV420 yeah 
Like I like I, I think of LV four twenty six as this horrible wind blown planet that you just find yourself on after a dropship lands. And you know the fact that no, no, it's a planet, it's in space. You can see it from space. You know, that just completely yeah. slips my mind because like it's not part of what I think of as part of the story. But that was a really a really super pretty uh, couple of paintings they used. Yeah. And there was um, there was one shot where you have like the crew on the left side, and you know with their headlights like shining like that bluish, like it keeps alternating between like blue and red because of the filter on the camera, I guess. And then on the left hand side of the screen, you have uh, the sun coming up, and the sun is just like this cobalt blue that's just you know whited out in the middle just because it's so bright. And I totally miss that every single time I see this movie before <laughs> that the sun that you actually got a sun, but it was you know it was it was a glowing ball, and the rest of the sky was just the same because of whatever's in the sky, which yeah. I think was just like sort of really added to the atmosphere of the of the surface of that planet as being just you know inhospitable, but at the same time really pretty. Yeah. And then the, the geysers. The geysers were another thing. It was just like that does not look great anymore. Um, so just for so something about that geyser looked super fake. Yeah, it really. Kind I don't of know what think, it was. Oh, hey, they, they 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 built a thing to be a geyser. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I, I like the idea of suggesting sort of like a weird, violent inhospitability of the surface. Yeah. But yeah, it did feel a little bit. Uh, uh, a little bit cramped at close quarters. Some of their walking through the surface, it felt a little bit like they were walking through a set designed to look like a small portion of the surface of a planet, which is... And you know what? Even considering that, I still prefer to CGI. Sure, yeah. I mean, this it wasn't, movie it wasn't, really... It wasn't this, is, this is... Yeah, this is just absolutely one of those movies that's just like, why, like, can we just maybe, like, get a grant going for directors who just want to make movies with, like, practical effects? I know there's got to be somebody that wants to do it. Not everybody can possibly be like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to use CGI for this. There's got to be somebody right now who wants to make a movie that is just almost entirely practical effects and just using CGI to, like, you know, take the seams off stuff and... And maybe you know, maybe maybe compile like the scene digitally, but still have everything in the scene be practical effects, and just you know, you can still green screen everything, but the things you're green screening are real and not like a tennis ball on a stick. Yeah, you can composite uh, your footage of of practical effects. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, just like there there were times when you know, it's like you know, you know, you're looking at a miniature at points, or you know, you're 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 looking at a set piece. But it still looks just so much better than you know them poking at something that you know is a big green brick. Well, and it's interesting because I feel like I feel like there's this two different directions being pulled in on sort of like especially like low budget independent filmmakers on this because one of the big narratives of the last twenty five years has been the rise of CGI effects and part of it is because it's been getting so much more photo. I mean, I mean, Jurassic Park came out and it was a huge deal and, and Terminator 2, the same thing. Those were a couple of like early you know, huge deal CGI spectacles. You know what? I just, just literally three days ago, I watched a little featurette on uh, the T-1000 uh, effects from Terminator 2. A lot of puppet work. A lot. I was surprised by how much. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, you know, the... Um, the You know, when, when they blow open his head and his head is like in two pieces? Yeah. Puppet. Huh. Uh, the the effect of it turning into two pieces is uh, is is CGI. Oh, but, but then, the actual then like, when he's, like him wandering along, I can buy that. Yeah. yeah, and also when his body gets basically blown into like three pieces, and you have that like one piece hanging off, kind of like Ash was in this movie, but it's like half of his body. Yeah, puppet. Huh. 
Yeah, it's well, it's a dude inside well, yeah, of like yeah, yeah. with an animatronic uh, like costume, basically. Yeah. Which doesn't uh, doesn't really shock me, I guess, because I, I feel like I remember having a sense of there being sort of cutaways for those shots, but I never really thought about it too much because like the the CGI was the big thing. Like at the time when Terminator Two came out, even though I think you look at it now and and the effects are still good, but they've aged. Like you can tell that this was you know cgi from whatever 20 years ago now right uh rather than like you know cutting edge polish right now coming out of something like weta or whatever um but it still looks pretty good but but at the time it was just so exciting because like it was so good at the time it was such a huge uh yes it was back before you knew that like liquid metal is the uh it's like shit what can we make this out of we don't have a lot of money but we got to use cgi liquid metal yeah it's, yeah it's opaque uh people don't know what it actually looks like so exactly. the light can reflect off of it any way we want yeah uh, so at know. the time actually a brilliant budget-minded decision but 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 it was it was such a big deal and jurassic park was such a big deal um, and at the time, those were still super expensive things. And then the the sort of latter day narrative has been the increasing affordability and accessibility of CGI. And we see people making uh, much smaller budget films that still have set pieces that would have been impossible to do practically uh, that they can do on CGI. And some of them look really good, and some of them look okay. Uh, but there's this. There, so I feel like on the one hand, there's this sense that CGI is getting cheaper and cheaper. It's getting more and more accessible. You really can if you're a crazy auteur who wants to do CGI stuff, do it on your own beefy computer at home uh, if you want to learn the modeling and learn the animation, learn the mocap. And you could, you could practically speaking, do all this stuff for like $10,000 instead of, you know, $10 million. And that's, that, that's a huge thing. But I feel like it may be in it may be a vote in favor for the continuing tradition of practical effects that along with this, the quality of CGI, the the quality ceiling has gone up so much that even though you can do a $10,000 CGI rig and do effects you never would have been able to do in 1980, the actual like top of the line quality CGI at this point has gotten so good that your garage CGI is going to look conspicuous in a way that it wouldn't have if you'd somehow been doing it in 1990. And so people may stick to practical effects partly because they can for $500 pull off this sort of goopy, silly looking thing, but it still looks pretty good as far as like, you know, cheap practical effects go versus spending more money to produce a really blatantly low quality CGI effect. You know, I kind of wonder if that's going to help actually, because people will be more satisfied with their squibs than with uh, you know the DIY CGI that might be more flexible, but just doesn't stand up to uh, modern CGI standards. Right. I um is my apparently ten minute rant about that that I didn't know I had in me. The whole time you were talking, all I'm thinking is just like I really, really wish that like I could get a ticket to the to the alternate universe premiere of Jurassic Park where they're just like where they decided to go with claymation instead of CGI because I just imagine that just Jurassic Park with claymation like it was still would have it would have been the greatest like claymation that had ever been made up to that point uh, and and just that would have really been something to see a new movie just came out that's um I'm not claymation I'm sorry stop motion there's a difference right yeah, uh, claymation a is a kind of stop motion. Stop yeah, motion is right. just a process of animating by you know taking a photo, altering the scene, taking a photo, yeah. and claymation. I think you deform the clay between the shots. Yeah, but it's still so stop I think motion. Stop, yeah, I think I meant. I think it was supposed to be stop motion, yeah. not claymation. Um, but yeah, that would have been that. Yeah, uh, a movie just came out. I think the box trolls is all stop motion. 
Uh, I don't is, know that one. What is that? Yeah, I I read it. I think somebody posted on Facebook. Somebody was just like, "Hey, I just went to go see the box trolls, and it is you know one hundred percent stop motion, and which is you know you don't get that a lot anymore from people who aren't Tim Burton, basically." Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to say I I, I think I, I really enjoy Harry Dean Stanton calling a cat. It turns out I had forgotten how much I enjoyed just him looking for Jonesy. <laughs> kitty, kitty, kitty! Oh, screw this, Jones! And, and you know they, they they everybody posts like ten hours of X on YouTube. I think someone should do a ten hour loop of excerpts of Harry Dean Stanton calling a cat, especially if they mix up the individual cat call scenes. Uh, throughout so that you don't just have the same like <laughs> minute long loop you have like a yeah. just a sort of semi random variety of Harry Dean Stanton cat calling <laughs> maybe I'll make that myself do you think Harry Dean Stanton was like born old I think so I think I think he was actually 23 when he made this film <laughs> uh, yeah I, I, he's a guy I know nothing about his earlier career I, I assume he like was acting for years and years before he made Alien, but uh, like Alien's the first thing that I know of offhand of him in, and yeah. Harry Dean Stanton's first role, yeah, he's been in movies consistently since 1956, although there's a lot of parentheses uncredited on this list. Um, wow, he is, he's up there with, uh, what the hell's his name, Max von Sydow, and that he's been in a movie almost every single year since 1956. Huh. Through, uh, now? Wow. Yeah, he's only got like a couple of years where he has not been in a movie since 1956. That's amazing. And throughout the 80s, he's got like two or three movies a year. Yeah. Which is... I, wow. Dude's got a hell of a career. How old is he now? He's 23. He's, now. he's 88. 88 years old. He was in Repo Man, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. He was really good in Repo Man. It's a great movie. I haven't seen that in, in a while. I should watch it again. I was confused because I actually had read a book called Repo Man or Repo Men, uh, or at least it was about Repo Men, uh, like shortly before I saw that movie, and I, I really knew nothing about Repo Man when I saw it. And so I was sort of thinking maybe it was sort of the same sort of thing of sort of like a gritty sort of, you know, fictional narrative of someone's memoirs working as a Repo Man. Uh, not really, not really what the film was so much uh, like. So I should really revisit it. But uh, also, there, there's the chains hanging in the refinery, yeah, uh, or whatever. Totally, this is a Hellraiser in space movie. Yeah. That was the whole thing. What, what was dripping off of everything in this movie? I don't know. Moisture, it was just things constantly dripping off of stuff. Why? Why would there be that much moisture in space? Why would they be keeping the ship moist? Maybe the refinery just is a humid thing. But yeah, it, I wasn't totally clear on that either. It felt like they were wasting a lot of water. Maybe. Well, or maybe maybe they just weren't processing it out of the ship. You know, maybe the climate controls are sort of cheap, and so it was more humid well, than it the, would be in a nicely. Filtered. I guess the climate control does work with hydrogen and, and oxygen. Maybe that's just like one of the... It just somehow makes water as a byproduct or something. I don't know. Maybe. Hey, it maybe it's like, urine. Maybe all their bathrooms are well, broken. They're probably like fusion reactors what the ship runs on. And oh, yeah. so, oh, so, yeah. um, so probably there's a lot of wastewater as yeah. a byproduct of uh, yeah. the... Because that's what yeah, you they do. You just like, it has a you randomly eject... Well, which yeah, is how they, she blows it up at the end. Uh, is, is my yeah, guess. yeah. So it's got rockets, but it also has a, a nameless drive, and it also has um, it's got like at least three modes of propulsion on that thing, because it's it's definitely got like you know rocket rocket like booster rockets. It's got the 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 mysterious drive that powers it through space and is just like you know incredibly fuel efficient or just 
you know, it, it works for like 10 months straight at least. Um, unless, I don't know. Oh, I mean, I guess it's space. If you plot a course accurate enough, you're not going to lose speed, right? Right. Which is... There's pretty minimal friction in the cold vacuum of space. What with yeah. the cold vacuum... So, yeah, so I guess you, you just have to speed and sort of keep going. Yeah, it was, I wasn't clear on whether it was supposed to be uh, some sort of faster-than-light drive or not. I've never really sort of looked into that. Yeah, because uh, the, the, you run into, like, the, 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 the guild navigator problem where it's just like, is that computer... You know, those, those computers have to be really, really good to be able to avoid literally everything while, you know, still being, like, in a general state of, uh, of, of sleep. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then see, so yeah, it's got the drive, it's got the boosters, and then it's got whatever it was that was like buffering its landing, which was um, it wasn't it wasn't rocketry, but it was definitely some sort of like downward pressure uh, coming off of like the bottom of the ship, maybe just very powerful air. Well, and that was that was the landing ship. That wasn't the Nostromo itself. Oh, so. right, right, yeah, that was so two different yeah. things. Yeah, some sort of yeah, some sort of retro rockets on the bottom of the 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 lander. Uh, yeah, that was great. It's, it's pretty. It's, I think that's like another one of the, the, the movie's successes, where they don't really go into the technology that powers the ship, but you do know that it requires like wrenches and hitting things with a hammer to fix. Yeah, which is which is great. It's just like, well, it's like you know, it's like I, I don't know how a fucking car works either, but you know, that's what looking on a, working on a car looks like. So yeah, that you know, I guess it works. Yep. It's just you know, if it needs repair, it works. I like the uh, those weird like fiber optic dangly flashlight things they had that was one of the, that was definitely one of those like moments just like no there's i really doubt that the that the general design of a flashlight is going to advance into that object yeah. within you know however many years i think it's still going to look like a flashlight just probably thinner or were they you know, ever using those anywhere besides in the science lab after they were looking for the the face hugging? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe, maybe they were no. dissection that they were yeah, like dissection yeah, lights. Yeah. Oh, so when they were in there, there's a scene where Ash like he's hanging around behind something, and then he like sees something, and then he like pokes his light in it, and then it cuts to the dead uh, face hugger dropping on Ripley. Is it implied that he sort of like pushed it out onto her? You know, I think that might be a scene that they trimmed down a little bit. Uh, because uh, watching last night, what I saw was him sort of looking back there and he sort of pokes around in there. Mm-hmm. And then I think it cut back to Ripley and she was sort of looking at something else and then and then the thing fell on her. You know, that's exactly what I saw. Okay. And like the just the juxtaposition of those makes it like he's poking at something you can't see and then for no reason at all, this dead thing drops out from like behind something. I, something I don't like, see how there would be a... A connection, in, so I'm kind of in space. To say it no, doesn't but. work. Just, just like if you picture like the, yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah there's, there's, there's nowhere for him to be standing behind something and her in front of something, and that thing drop out there. Yeah. But, so but then, why did that thing fall? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly. I can't. I think that might be one of those like you better not question it. Uh, like maybe moments. this is just something that fell to a little bit of like you know trouble with editing. You know, because yeah. like it doesn't make sense cinematically. It doesn't make sense narratively. There's no reason for there to be a causal connection there, uh, and yet it is confusing that we end up seeing those two scenes in sequence. And so it's tempting to try and draw a connection. And yeah, I feel like maybe it's just something that uh, what they ended up with footage wise just didn't edit together uh, as well as it had been planned. There, um, right before that, when they just enter the uh, the lab, when they find out like the thing is gone, there's this really conspicuous camera angle placement, which is 
on the floor, like it, you're, 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 it's from the floor pointing up a little bit, uh, really wide angle when they come in and then they start rooting around. And then you get a moment where um, I think it's Dallas passes right in front of the camera. The camera's stationary the whole time. Uh, and you get Dallas pass right in front of it. And that's the moment when like somebody knocks something over and scares the crap out of Ripley. And I, I definitely did not remember what was going to happen there. And like that, the, the, the camera angle is just so, uh, so obviously like could be from like the point of view of something you're not looking at that. I think that was really effective. Um, and just, you know, I might've caught that before. I might've not, um, because, you know, I was just like, yeah, I'm sure that the thing drops out onto her. Like, I didn't think yeah. I, I, I didn't think that they were going to find it any other way. But I'm just like, what is this on the floor? Because the chestburster wasn't there yet. And that's like the only um, the only thing that it could be. Yeah. The question is, is this an actual POV shot, you know, from a, some character's actual point of view? Or are we just doing a conspicuous shot? I didn't even I, I didn't even make a note of that. And I'm not specifically remembering it right offhand, that specific shot, which is interesting because it sounds like it's somewhat uh, conspicuous. Um, but yeah, I think it may have just been sort of drawn up in it. But I, I do want to say, I, again, with sort of parallels to stuff in Aliens, that this scene feels like Aliens comes back and parallels it strongly with the scene with uh, Ripley and Newt in wherever it is that uh, they go. Ripley goes to put Newt down for a nap, basically, um, and then ends up falling asleep with her, and then they end up being attacked by uh, facehuggers that have mysteriously gotten out uh, because of Paul Reiser. Um, and it, it feels like it feels like sort of like the same space again and the same sort of setup of a room and there's a uh, face hugger that's the point of concern and we've got some low angle shot stuff and all this, you know, it's, it's not, it's not an exact, you know, replication of the scene by any means, but still it feels like a strong sort of structural parallel in terms of like the space and the contents of it um, just sort of jumped out at me at the time. And, and to some extent had me forgetting exactly how that scene played out. It's like, Oh wait, is there going to be a, is there going to be a face hugger? There's going to be a face, yeah, because it's the same sort of like enclosed space and a face hugger and attacking Ripley thing. So, you know what I just remembered? When I was a kid, there was a lot of um, alien merchandise specifically aimed at kids. Like it was action figures and stuff. Oh, sure, yeah. And you know, the, all the advertisements on the TV had like kids playing with it, and it, it strikes me as weird because there was no um, kid-oriented alien stuff. Uh, even into the 90s, like unlike, you know, like other violent action movies that ended up being like marketed towards kids, um, like uh, you got RoboCop, uh, Rambo, I'm trying to think of other stuff. All of that stuff had like some sort of kid-friendly version, like a cartoon or, you know, like a severely toned down movie, like um, I think RoboCop 2 or especially RoboCop 3 where you got like the, the fighter jet and you got ninjas in it Yeah. Uh, compared to, you know, like RoboCop 2 is still fairly... Uh, weird and dark. I don't yeah, think yeah. it was as outright bloody explosion of human body yeah. violent, but it was still... Uh, yeah, and I mean, like, the, the, the first RoboCop is just, like, hyper-violent, like, really yeah, yeah. deep satire. It's just, like, in no way is any of this, like, meant for a kid to get. Um, and in RoboCop there, it's like, all right, we got ninjas in a jetpack, all right. <laughs> but yeah, for Aliens, there was never, like, a kid-friendly alien thing, except maybe the comics, and even then, it was like a, it was a dark horse comic, it was, um, you know, it wasn't, 
uh, from what I remember, they weren't like you know four color like even like superhero comics. Even even compared to like like even compared to like the Rob Liefeld stuff that was coming out that was aimed towards you know like younger you know like you talk about like twelve or thirteen. But these action figures that's for, what like say just like eight or nine, right? Yeah, yeah. This- yeah, there was nothing for, like aimed for a nine year old in the Aliens franchise <laughs> out at any point that I can remember, <laughs> uh, except for the toys. Which is, it's, yeah, you, you think they would have made a cartoon or something. Was there, a, there was never an alien cartoon, no. I don't, I don't think so. No. I hope not. No. That's, uh. <laughs> really cool toys, though. Um, and they found out, and they, you know, thanks to aliens, it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> buy 20 of these, you know, xenomorph toys, then that way it'll be just like the, the movie. <laughs> um,. I want to just a weird little cinematic thing uh, that uh, I think this is the first time I actually noticed it. I had to, I took a guess at what was going on, but had to look it up to verify that I was thinking the right way during Ripley's scene in Mother's room. Um, which, by the way, I think it's totally reasonably up in the air whether Mother was actually stonewalling uh, Dallas or Ripley typing into Mother, or if that just that AI had the same troubles as contemporary chatbot parsers, where they just can't handle questions super well, and so they just stall with yeah, like, oh, it's like Dallas is, what's the story, mother? It's like, I don't know. What's the story with you? <laughs> just repeating the question. <laughs> Why do you say, what's the story, mother? <laughs> yeah. But uh, but anyway, so so Ripley's in mother's room, and we're getting her typing and, and, and cutaway shots to the screen where she's typing stuff and mother's responding, and then cutaway shot back to her. In, in in like close up and and shallow depth of field, so the the lights in the background, all the blinking lights are uh, uh, blurry, and we've got a nice uh, bokeh on them. Uh, that's sort of like you know round halo instead of like the actual focused sharp light. Um, but the interesting thing is, it's not a round bokeh. It's it all the little lights are these tall, skinny ovals instead of circles. Um, and it's because they were using an anamorphic lens to shoot it. And so the bokeh of that lens ends up reading as uh, ovular in the actual print, which is like a I, – I don't, I don't think like I'm even going to do it justice. Do you know about anamorphic lenses, anamorphic uh, shooting? I, I don't understand it well enough that I, I can say that I understand it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, well, like lens just – just any sort of photographic stuff. I've read so much about it, and I just something about it just does not click in my head. That I was just like that. I can have like an implicit understanding of how things like you know different lenses and depth of field work. Yeah. Well, okay, I'll, 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 I'll try and possibly fail to do a very short version of the deal with anamorphic for the sake of uh, our, our listeners as well. I guess uh, so. A thirty-five millimeter frame that you know a whole lot of film shot on, and that includes uh, Alien. Um, a 35 millimeter frame is about a two by three uh, aspect ratio. You know, like if, if it was if it was this big, it'd be like three inches wide by two inches tall. Um, although an actual frame is much smaller if you've ever used a film camera, which it's increasingly unlikely that our audience hasn't, depending on <laughs> when they were born. But in any case, uh, you've got this rectangle. It's about three by two. Um, the the aspect ratio of uh, a theatrical print is usually much wider. It's more like, you know, instead of like, that'd be like 1 to 1.5. We're looking more like 1 to 1.85 or 1 to 2.35. It's much wider than it is tall. But the thing is, it's still going to put a frame of film 
uh, through the camera for each frame shot. So if you're shooting for widescreen, if, if you're shooting a widescreen picture onto a frame of 35 millimeter, what you end up doing is exposing sort of the middle third of that and the top and the bottom get nothing on them because you're shooting a widescreen picture uh, that only exposes the shape of that screen onto the frame. So it has to fit on there and the top and the bottom are just waste and they, each frame you've got that top and bottom that are sort of waste material. So the deal with an anamorphic lens is it's a lens with an extra glass element or elements that squeeze the picture. Um, essentially what you do is end up exposing the entire frame of 35 millimeter film and you've got this squished skinny film uh, image that's much narrower than the actual widescreen version of it will be. And then when you project it, you have to project it through an anamorphic lens as well, and that squeezes, like, like it stretches it back out to be as wide as the movie screen is or your TV screen. Um, and this is, so it, it's an intentional distortion where you, you, you sort of distort the picture on the way in and then reverse distort it on the way out. And as a result, you use a whole lot more of the content of the film frame, which means you get a lot more detail. You get a lot more fine resolution, essentially, per frame of film because you're using all this material instead of only like, you know, half of it. Uh, but the downside is it's a little tricky because you have to use the specific lenses and you have to go both in and out, you know, both while shooting it and then projecting it at the, the movie theater if you're watching it like that. Um, so it, it has some tricky things, but it also lets you get some different photographic effects than you would with a, a, a normal aspect uh, spherical lens. Uh, but one of the weird things is that, like, as a result of this, you've got essentially uh, a circle is shaped like an oval on the print, and then it's expanded back out. And as a result of that, the bokeh, the the sort of ghostly halo of a light instead of an in-focus light when you've got the lights in the background out of focus, uh, ends up being an oval instead of a circle. And you can see this in the mother scene really clearly. There's Everything's got ovals. And you can, if you, if you Google anamorphic, uh, anamorphic bokeh. Bokeh is B-O-K-E-H. Uh, you can find a bunch of examples from the other films too. But it's a neat thing, and I'd never, I'd never clicked on this before. And I was sitting watching. I got so excited. So there's your random little technical thing that uh, that that I got out of the film. So why would the bokeh be distorted, but the image not? Um, I think because the bokeh was undistorted when the image was recorded. Like everything gets squeezed, but the bokeh, the bokeh is produced. Uh, okay, technical thing too. The reason you get a bokeh is, you know, the inside aperture of a lens that everything ends up being narrowed down through before it gets exposed. Uh, the iris is generally a circle. You know, that's just the way lenses tend to look because um, it's a bunch of different sheets that sort of close in together or open up together, kind of like uh, the uh, the doors in the ducts that Dallas was moving through. You know, those those irises of doors that open and close. Uh, do you remember that, the, the sort of the circular opening and closing uh, door? Anyway, it was there. Uh, that was the, uh, the, the, the sphinctery one. Yeah, the sphinctery one. That's basically what a camera iris looks like, too. And it, it opens and closes to change the aperture, to change the exposure and the, the, the look of the, the picture you're taking. Um, and that's basically circular. And so the, the, the ghostly shape of uh, light ends up looking circular, too, just, just because that's the shape of the iris. And so that's the the shape that ends up coming through in its blurry fashion. Uh, you can have differently shaped irises and you'll actually get a differently shaped bokeh. So sometimes you'll see actually a like sort of vaguely pentagonal bokeh from a camera that uses uh, fewer blades for that iris so that it ends up being... Oh, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. 
Um, for that matter, you can do really crazy, clever bokeh stuff by actually obscuring portions of your lens and still basically get a functioning picture, but the bokeh will all be... Like, I've seen people do, like, star-shaped bokeh and stuff like that. You can do kind of weird, crazy, clever things with it if you want to. Um, but as a result, so you've got a circular bokeh, but it's getting squeezed by the anamorphic lens, so that's how you end up with the oval, I guess. It's sort of like everything else gets created, everything else gets squeezed to be, or stretched to be correct-looking, uh, and the bokeh, I think, was maybe correct-looking in the first place because of where it happens in the exposure process, and so it gets distorted when everything else gets fixed, which is sort of a weird thing. Um, but yeah, I wish I wish I could tell you with more confidence the detail of how that works, but uh, <laughs> but uh, the internet has a bunch of uh, information on this as well. If you're if you're, uh, how do I access this internet? Uh, first, uh, you need to stick a card in the thing outside of Mother's room. Uh, and then you press a button, I guess, and then I think you swipe something, and it slowly powers up, and then and then you can sit down at the blinking light terminal and say, "What's mother. the story?" Yeah, and she'll say, "I don't understand." You say, "No, no, I mean the internet." She's like, "Oh, okay, here you go. You have three mails." Uh, um, overlap with the thing. Uh, the uh, when they were trying to radio home, they were trying to contact the Antarctic base. Oh, maybe that's where the, uh, the the good radio tower was. Yeah, I mean, and that, I guess that makes sense because there's less atmosphere over the North Pole. Is that true? I guess, or something. Maybe, maybe at that point we had just like completely burnt out the ozone layer entirely over the poles, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, this is perfect for radio transmission. Like it's almost gone anyway. Let's land see, yeah. now. Yeah. No more of that ice. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, wonder. I think an argument can be made that this and the thing takes place in the same universe. I think that's plausible. Just very far apart. And I mean, you know, the, the, the beards and hairstyles. Uh. I think the argument could be made that uh, that Alien versus Predator is a sequel to The Thing. I could see that. I mean, I, I, could, I would want to see a Thing-Predator crossover where the Predator is hunting the Thing. That could be interesting. You realize this is how bad movies end up getting made. Someone, someone says something like this, and then someone else has money, and it happens. If so you have, have money, money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. Okay, so here's something from the film that has always been sort of uh, confusing to me. Ash. So Ash confronts uh, Ripley after he catches her finding out that the crew's expendable for mother. Right. Uh, and the culmination of this confrontation with them that that gets violent is. Uh, him rolling up a magazine after he's sort of knocked Ripley out a little bit, and while she's laying there still sort of dazed, he takes a magazine and he rolls it up real tight, and then he starts to, I guess, shove it into her mouth. Was he just going to, like, shove it down her throat? Yeah, I think he was just going to try to suffocate her like that. It's it's a really weird approach to suffocating someone. It never made sense to me as a kid. I think it still doesn't really make sense to me now. There's, I think there's an implication that something went wrong with his programming after she shoved him into the wall. Because at that point, he also starts bleeding. And he starts bleeding like the white goo. Yeah. And maybe that's another cutscene where he just sort of like makes eye contact with her. And like you see a bead of sweat. But it's not a bead of sweat. It's a bead of like the, you know, the, 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 the stuff that he, that, that he runs on. I assume it's yeah. equal mix of you know, creamer and yeah. semen or something. Yeah, but, whatever. Android. Android yeah. juice. Android goop. Um, so maybe because, it's like, you think maybe it's it's weird because he's just going weird, and so he's like improvising on poor be. circuitry? And the other thing is that at that point, if his cover is blown, you know, he 
just as a, as a robot, you know, he must realize that his cover's blown and that he is league stronger than anybody else is there. And he's just, def- you know, like his heuristic thing is just like, what is the quickest way to kill her right now? And for some reason, instead of just manually strangling her, he goes for the magazine. Yeah, it, um, seems, it seems like if, if you've got like superhuman strength and you've got someone who's like not... Could have just snapped her neck like a chicken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stra- snap her neck, crush her turkey, something. There, a lot of ways you could like violently kill very quickly a human laying more or less defenseless before you if you've got crazy strength. Yeah, I think it's implied that something good, because right before that, um, you see him just like looking, like he throws Ripley into a corner, um, and he's looking around, and one of his eyes is just like blinking really, really quickly, like you know, if it was a, it was a person, it would be you know, a person has like a severe like you know twitch or tardive dyskinesia or something. But it's clearly like when Ripley smashed him against the wall, like I guess he was a particularly poorly made android? I don't know, because like <laughs> nothing there s- signified that something would happen to a well-made machine. Well, there's also a little bit of a... There's, there's, so I, I don't know if this was made more coherent in the 2003 cut or not, but in the theatrical cut, certainly, there's just a sudden jarring discontinuity. It's, it's a minor thing, but like I notice it now uh, because I've noticed it before and I've read about it, so I never don't notice. Uh, Ripley's in Mother talking to her ash is suddenly there she's like uh walking out you know the, there's the door closing uh hijinks happen a couple times <laughs> um might as well be like somebody swinging a ladder around that scene she's like i'm gonna go out this door nope i yeah there's something slapsticky about that scene i don't know why um but yeah go on <laughs> but 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 then at some point suddenly her nose is bloody and, yeah and yeah, the same thing- and like the next shot is ash the one you say with the thing and I think I think as originally sh- scripted and shot, they had an altercation, and I don't know if they restored any of that altercation in the two thousand three. The only cut. part of the altercation that I saw was her slamming him against a wall and him like pushing back, but he didn't. There was nothing. Yeah, I, that bloody nose was also like really weird to me because I was just like, first of all, like I couldn't. There was a lot of like uh, shadow and and you know going in between like shadow and light in that scene, so I was just like, I think it's bloody, but it could just be like a weird shadow. But now that you confirmed it, yeah, it was definitely bloody and there was definitely nothing on screen to explain why her nose is like slightly bloody yeah so i think it was just like the slightest bloody where it was just like you know the it it was the it wasn't the kind of bloody nosebleed you get from you know like getting punched in the face it was like the kind that you know it's like oh it's you know too dry in here and like you know a vessel went and it just like slowly started dripping out yeah so yeah there, there was nothing to signify why that was happening short of her you know, having a brain tumor that just kicked in at that moment, or I don't know. Yeah, so it's, that, that's a little thing that I like. I just have to sort of assume, imagine myself that they had some brief little slap fight as well. Maybe that, we should just assume that everybody is just constantly doing cocaine off camera. That's probably it. Just like, just yeah, they're truckers, or not cocaine. I guess it would be meth. It would be space meth, right? Just everybody is just constantly. <laughs> but the dr- the drug treadmill far enough in the future gets to the point where cocaine is the new meth. Like nobody does meth anymore because that's crazy. But cocaine is the shitty drug you do because you can't afford uh, soma or whatever. Um, what is Brave New World? Is that soma? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. References literature. We're 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 smart people. Um, 
Anyway, I still the, the magazine thing. It, it still seems bizarre to yeah. me, and and I, I I can buy the oh, it's his programming gone weird, but it's still yeah. it's still. I'm like sitting here watching a movie, and I, and, I, and I could get into the idea that we're going to explore the way that a robot breaks down, but we really don't get a whole lot of that. We get very gestural. Ian Holm does a nice job of conveying uh, twitchy inhumanity yeah. in there, but we don't really get to explore Ash's like process of breaking down as a character there at all. It's it's, it's pretty. If you if, if you if you'll allow me, I want to do something that is very out of character for this podcast and present to you a a theory that barely hangs together. But this is um, bold new ground for us, Jesus! I I apologize to the listeners if you weren't ready for, for <laughs> such a for such a moment. I, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, but so Ash is a he's probably not made to with programming to kill somebody. Like he probably knows something of human biology, maybe not a lot. Like I don't know how much memory is on these things, um, but you know, like the the only interaction he's had so far with 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 something killing something else was when the face hugger was like in the process of uh, inseminating uh, what's his name, Kane. Uh, Kane, and it was just like they realized it was breathing for him, so he's just like, all right, well, if this thing has to breathe for him to keep him alive, if I this magazine won't do that, and if I just shove this down Ripley's throat, she'll die. Maybe it was just like you know him improvising with like the limited amount of information he has as to you know how to do this. I like that idea. I'm not sure. I, I don't think I buy it, but I like it because <laughs> uh, well, part of it is is I uh, I. I well, I, I, he seems to have too good a sense of human mannerism. Like, yeah. like everybody thought he was not a robot, as far as we can tell. And you know, he did things like sigh and whatnot. Like, like I, I, I think he non-robot things when nobody was watching. Like he, uh, when he was going into the uh, when everybody was like venturing out onto the surface, and he was going into like that observation room that I I can't tell if it was his lab or if it was another room, but the room that had the actual window. Yeah. Like when he goes in there, he does like a little jog in place and then blows into his hands because I guess it's pretty cold in there. Yeah. Or was that what that was? Was he just trying to warm I, himself? I think up? maybe so. I've I've heard people. Uh, make the argument that that was supposed to be a sign that he's a robot because he ran so fast. But it, like he didn't, it wasn't a special effect. It was just Ian Holm doing a quick little jog yeah. in place. It was a little bit weird, but Ash is a little bit weird guy. So I think the warming up because it's a little cold in here. Yeah. Uh, you mentioning his name, sense. it just makes me just. It is really disconcerting to see Ian Holm as a young person or he as a younger person. Yeah, he wasn't exactly young in Alien, but yeah, yeah, that's the thing too. He, it's I'm just so used to him being like a a, a wizened old man from like you know, the fifth element or something that just like seeing him as, you know, a middle-aged guy is weird. It's like, he's not quite done yet. And alien alien was such a big effect on me, you know, that like I, I, every time I see Ian Holm in something more recently, I'm like, Oh, Hey, it's Ian Holm. He was an alien, you know? And so like, that is like, you know, like I understand that he has aged since then. He's played older characters and whatnot. And that's fine. But like, that is sort of like my picture of Ian Holm is, is 1979 and alien. Um, so like yeah, him, him, is, him as old Bilbo, is, like oh he's old Bilbo. That's uh, he, wait that oh shit that was him huh? That was. Wait, was that in 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 the original trilogy or yeah Lord of the Rings? Okay, uh, I, well, I think he had I, I haven't seen the Hobbit, so I don't know if there's any like forward scenes where they switch out Martin I, Freeman for I, I, I guess uh, Ian Holm. But. I think Ian Holm might have had like a little bit as old Bilbo in the like beginning of the first Hobbit film, just like pulling out the old book. 
and looking at it. But then after that, it's just Martin Freeman as as young Bilbo. Is any good? I keep hearing nothing good about them. You know, they they're they're sort of ponderous and a bit wanky and overly long and really stretching what was a pretty short story and making a little bit more serious and grim at times to comport well with the Lord of the Rings films, I guess. But I never read The Hobbit more than like I read a little bit of it but I never really read the whole thing so I don't really have that sense of betrayal I guess a lot of people have been experiencing I'm like whatever you know it's like I know I'm going to see a Peter Jackson Tolkien film like and I saw three of those already so I have a pretty good idea what I'm getting into and uh, you know these ones are more it's more Peter Jackson making Tolkien movies and the fact that Hobbit is a very different book than the Lord of the Rings trilogy is you know it's a fair point of complaint for people who are expecting a different treatment but it's also did it just How dumb do you have to be tone? to be shocked that Peter Jackson made more movies exactly <laughs> like the movies he made before that made huge piles of money that they let him make more of? I mean, okay, so it's the same tone as the Lord of the Rings movies. Kinda. Then. I mean, it's it's a little bit. I, I would say it's a little bit lighter in spaces, but in general, it's sticking with that tone. You know, it's it's going with that sort of Jacksonian take on the story, and he's treating the Hobbit as you know a earlier story in the same you know work basically, which I realize is not necessarily totally how Tolkien uh, approached it. Like, the, the Lord of the Rings came after The Hobbit, and he wrote it somewhat differently, and, and whatnot. And also, I feel really bad, because I, I said, how dumb do you have to be? I don't actually think anybody's dumb. That's just... I, I, I feel like I'm surprised that people are surprised, mostly, that The Hobbit has resembled in so many directorial and aesthetic ways uh, Lord of the Rings. But a lot of what people complain about is that there's stuff from the book that's not in there and there's stuff that's there that's not from the book. And that I understand more in terms of a purest sense of like, okay, The Hobbit, the movies, is not The Hobbit, the book, to a greater extent than The Lord of the Rings, the movies, are not Lord of the Rings, the book. Uh, but uh, I, guess I mean, I in that case, I, I might enjoy it because the differences between the Lord of the Rings, or at least the Fellowship of the Ring book and movie, is the reason why I can make it to the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll yeah, give it a I, shot. I think it's worth watching sometime. I wouldn't like it's not high priority, but I, I, I feel like it's it, it's interesting to watch. You know, it's it's a nice looking film. It's a nice la- sounding film. You know, it's it's got its funny bits and its exciting bits and whatnot. And there's some good dwarf singing. So, you know, uh, what were we? T- oh, Ian Holm, right? Yeah, Ash. Ian Holm. Um, okay, yeah. So the um, the the I what I really liked about like the whole so the first that that was the one thing the first time I saw Alien I did not see coming, which was um, Ash being an android. Just because for some reason that part that doesn't make it into pop culture as much as all the other stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's great because it's just such a jarring, completely different science fiction element that fits in well. It, it, it makes sense. And people, like everybody on the ship, has the same general amount of like shock at the fact that he's an android as that they found like an alien life form. Where it's, you know, it, it's unexpected, but it's not like super extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like the... Like, the big problem isn't that he's an android. The big problem is that everybody knows that an android is just, like, you know, much, much stronger than a human being and much more capable. And they're just like, we have to, you know, destroy this thing immediately. Yeah. Although, you know, what they, they just... Yeah, how well made can that thing possibly be if they knocked off the entire head just by hitting it, <laughs> hitting it once with a 
fire hydrant? A human head doesn't do that. Yeah, you can't do that to a person. Well, you know, different materials have different strengths and weaknesses. You, you, you think know. the android would be made of better and stronger materials? Well, and, and, and as you say, it, it may be reasonable to assume this was not intended yeah. to be a combat droid anyway. So right, but um, yeah, like the thing where they reactivate his head. Um, that's another one of those. Just like you know, you know that the. the the effect is just like you can almost see the, the the stuff like dripping in between his neck and the hole that his head is coming out of, to so they could shoot it looking like it's on a table. But like at that point, like I, I think this movie is so good at like allowing you to give it the benefit of the doubt for like the effects that it makes. It's just like all right, it's just like all right, you know what? I know that's his head sticking out from a board that they made. They're making look like a table. I know how the effect is done. It's, yeah, and the transition. You know, it's it's kind of a it's a it's yeah, a rough transition. transition. Is, you know, the coloration yeah. is not even correct on the fake head yeah, versus yeah, the, in the, home. The so the fake head that's like hanging off of him when he's his body is just like wandering around doing like the headless body thing is not great. The one after they disconnect his head while it's on the table is just bad. It just yeah. does not look like it doesn't. It hardly looks like a human head, much less an Ian Holm human head. Yeah. But you know, it, it's still you know you still get the benefit of the doubt, and then you you get like the really cool scene of them just like roasting the thing, and you can watch like the human flesh come off the robot, and there's just like you know a robot made of something under it, like some sort of plastic that it, it doesn't look like an animatronic robot. Yep. It just you know it's it's whatever, however it is that like whatever technology it is that is powering like that android to be able to have human facial expressions, it's beyond anything we have now. But it's still believable that like you know they're like this plastic like this moldable plastic surface is making all these facial expressions like yeah. i can believe that that's you know um, well, yeah and i would say that that is like that is one thing that i would say if if ridley had decided to go back and try and george lucas a uh, little bit of the, this movie you know I, I feel like using modern digital effects and modern compositing to make that fake head not look so fake uh, would have made for a slightly less distracting scene like it's it's one of the scenes in the film where I was actually, I'm every single time I'm like, oh shit! Now here's that shitty head effect that they had. You know, and I would love it if they were able to somehow just magically make it I, not so sort of shitty. Like, because I'm I'm totally willing to forgive it. Like, I, I'm I'm with you on just like yeah. But I mean, the film is working so well and the scene is so good that it's like whatever. Okay, oh, there's a sort of a shitty effect and they did a conspicuous cut to the actual guy's head and here we are okay let's get back to it let's get back to the movie you know but it's still every single time I trip over it every single time I'm like oh but that head is not so good also I love the idea that Ripley just has like instant knowledge of how to like wire the 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 head and the body of the robot back into like the ship's main system it's just like well this thing clips on here this one goes here and really good she's like somebody like i she must be a very good engineer or something like because that was you I know think, yeah i think i think i think she's got some training some schooling and she's actually this is where i'll use this in real life oh okay uh, well, the power loader thing in Aliens. Too, oh yeah, that's that, right. That, yeah. That's a skill set coming in. She's like, I can run that loader. I've got the class three certification or whatever. You know. So yeah, I think I think I think maybe both of those. We can just say this is her sort of civilian uh, training uh, or non combat training, sort of like paying paying dividends. Where yeah, she knows how to hotwire an android. She knows how to run yeah. a power loader. Yeah, you can sort of yeah, you can sort of see Ripley getting set up as like the sort of character that is, you know, like the like the i like the incredibly competent like itinerant wandering like person like uh, uh what's his name? Um, was that a Kira Kurosawa movie? 
uh, uh, Yojimbo. Yojimbo, yeah. Yeah, where you have this, like, you know, amazing, like, tactician samurai warrior who just wanders around doing stuff. And you can definitely see, like, Ripley getting set up as, like, that kind of character who's just, like, you know, she's a space trucker because that's, you know, that's what she is right now. And tomorrow she's going to be, like, you know, using a power loader. The day after that, you know, Maybe. fixing androids somewhere, you know, like playing, a Blade Runner playing store. chess in uh, McMurdo and uh, pouring booze into the chess machine when it beats. Sorry, I'm going, <laughs> going for the thing again here, but uh, uh, you know, I, throws a beard, becomes an alcoholic helicopter pilot. I, I, I think it's. I think it is really interesting, and this sort of loops back around to what we were talking about at the beginning with the franchise. But yeah, in this film, like Ripley is known as this huge badass, and in this film, she doesn't really engage in a whole lot of badassery. She 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 engages in a lot of willful. Uh, getting stuff done, and and she's 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 smart, and she's focused, and she's no bullshit, and she displays you know uh, courage while terrified, and, and all these things. But but none of it's like she's not slinging a, a a grenade launcher over her neck, and you know fighting a giant thing in a face up battle. She's not running a power loader. She's, she's just she's being, not an action hero. Yeah, she's just she's just sort of being competent and focused and having her shit together under pressure even while terrified uh, and it's kind of funny that you know that's that really made Ripley this character uh, but Aliens is what really made it a big thing and, and there everything is dialed way up where the core of the character really is there in this film and like you know if if Ripley had been someone else in this film you know she probably wouldn't have gone out alive because you know she wouldn't have had that sort of will but none of that ends up being quotable. Nobody talks about, oh, remember that thing, that, that badass thing she did in Alien? Because everything she does in Alien is relatively, uh, you know, I, 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 it's, it's non-flashy. There's nothing flashy in Alien. It's like, the, like, the, I, like she, she, she does shout, you bitch, at Mother at one point and like hits, uh, uh, I want to say, a hanging like CRT monitor with whatever heavy piece of equipment she was holding at the time, I think after she fails to get the uh, self-destruct turned back off. Yeah, Yeah, there's, um, I think like, just there's like hints of like the you know, it, in, in Aliens, yeah, you know, you rocket launcher, power loader, you know, all, like, you get the action hero stuff. In this one, you just get, like, you clearly get a person who knows what the right thing to do and does it without hesitation. Like, when she was just, like, they're like, hey, let us in, you know, uh, Ash got this, uh, not Ash, uh, what's his name, Kane got this stupid thing on his face, and she's like, "I'm n- no, <laughs> exactly. absolutely not. Um, you know, you, you see, like, not a moment of hesitation or being like, I am absolutely not letting you in with, like, a space parasite on you. It'll kill us all, which it does. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I mean, in, in that way, like, Ash is the one who does get everybody killed, which I think is, uh, you know, the, the, the whole, like, crew is expendable thing is... Well, and uh, it's also, it's also uh, up until we sort of know to watch it for the dramatic irony there, it's also yeah. Ash being, making the very human decision in the face of Ripley being this yeah. uh, super, super hard-ass, you know, unempathetic, no, no, sorry, you're going to spend the next day in that airlock, uh, and he might die, and okay, you might die from whatever he dies from, but you're not coming in because, you know, that's protocol. And, you know, that's, that's a cold fucking thing to do, and she's been set up uh, in little ways as just sort of like a pedantic hard ass uh, up till that point throughout the film too but that ends up being what sort of pays off uh, in the end for her that she keeps her focus and keeps sort yeah. of 
trying to do the right thing. Well, and, and so I was going to say, it's coming back to what we talked about at the beginning, Alien 3, I feel like we see that Ripley again, you know, and she's in a situation where she doesn't have any flashy options. She's not surrounded by a bunch of, you know, Marines. She doesn't get to be particularly sassy about anything. She's just there. She's stuck on this planet. Uh, she finds out there's an alien around. She finds out she has a fucking alien inside of her. And throughout all this, she's just very sort of pragmatic and trying to deal with the situation, not even necessarily make the best of the situation per se. It's not really a make the best of a situation sort of story in alien three, but she's just sort of there and she's dealing and she's coping and she's making decisions and she's trying to help these, uh, dudes on this planet make decisions too. Uh, and yeah, it's sort of, it's really sort of alien Ripley back without all the distracting action set pieces, uh, and much more just like the situation is fucked do X, Y, and Z and, you know, let's do it in order and do it now. You know, and it's, it's it, I, I, I like alien three for bringing that back and having it be hard decisions on short notice in the face of, you know, a, a, a sort of terrible situation. Yeah. That's the thing with the characterization of this movie is that if the people had the jobs that they were supposed to, and that Ripley would be the captain, there'd be no movie. You just get, they, they'd get, they, they'd get the ore back and that's it. And you know, they'd lose a guy or they would do the thing that just, Parker's just like freeze him. Like I was half expecting him to just like get a piece of paper, write freeze him on it. Just like <laughs> a marker and smack it up against the window. <laughs> it's like, Yep. And and yeah, that, that part actually did not make any sense to me, which is why I'm glad that at least one of the characters was doing that, where it's just like, all right, like, you know, Ash's job is to get the specimen back to Earth. You can get it back to Earth frozen. You don't need to dissect it right there and then. You don't need to get the guy out right there and then, because if you freeze it, you know, it, it's sort of implied that if they put him in hypersleep, it, you know, both things will, will hibernate, right? Probably. Probably. Yeah, so, yeah, but... <laughs> And then, did you notice that um, also Ash was not wearing a shirt under his scrubs? I did not notice that. It was, yeah, there's a couple of scenes where it's just like, you quickly see him, like, you know, you see his back and he's clearly got his shirt off. And you just see him, he's wearing, uh, at first I was just like, is he just totally naked under his scrubs? But then, no, you see his <laughs> pants, but he definitely takes his shirt off to put them on, which, I mean, I, I guess. Yeah, um, whatever. He runs a yeah. little warm. Oh, you know, I wanted to say one thing. I was complaining about the fake uh, the, the the fake head with the mm-hmm. post beheading interview, but I, I will say immediately after that, once they cut to his head, there's this great little thing where where Ripley like slams her hand on the table and shouts at Ash, and and his body does flinch behind him, like his, his arm flinches when she yells at his yeah yeah, his and I loved that. That was a great little. I, that's part of what helps me just sort of move on with that scene. Is like it's like little it's little also, um, touches. Yeah, it's also sort of like a great parallel to when they start poking the the dead face hugger and it still reacts. And it's like, oh, it's just a reflex action. Um, so that was a kind of a nice parallel to that when like the arm moves. Um, also, you know, I just <laughs> that is true. I hadn't, there I hadn't is really thought about that. I, I still don't know. I do not think that there is a way that you can have like a rampaging headless body in a movie without it being fucking hilarious. It's, it's pretty much impossible. Yeah. There, there, there's something just fundamentally goofy about the whole thing. Uh, I, I, I want another tie into. Uh, here's another theory. Okay, another theory. So, so Ripley's got her antagonism with Mother. She tries to blow up the ship, then she tries to not blow up the ship, and then she can't not blow up the ship because the countdown has passed by like two seconds when she gets a lever up. Uh, and she she shouts, uh, you know, you bitch, and and hits a monitor. Uh, 
Ripley's antagonism towards the alien queen and aliens. I think it's actually, if anybody else had been there to see that, it'd be like, whoa, Ripley, are you okay? It's just a big bug. But she's processing this like post-traumatic projection of her frustration with mother on the Nostromo onto that whole thing and creating this antagonist narrative above and beyond what actually existed between her and the alien queen. And we're just seeing sort of like her subjective perspective of that whole thing in the film where she's really just not dealing well with her trust issues regarding uh, supervisors in the form of computers. And just the company in general. Yeah, exactly. Where, so it's not about know, the alien queen. You know, yeah, under that's, better circumstances, um, they could work together. They could be friends. That, yeah, that was the thing. Like, I never really took Mother to be the antagonist in this movie well, in any way except for a proxy for the company. Yeah. Which I think is great because they build up, like, they mention the company maybe twice, at most three times. Yeah, and it's just like the company. You yeah, know, and Wayland Tani is not mentioned at any point, I think, in any way. In yeah, I don't film. think you get the name, except maybe it's on somebody's T-shirt or something. I, I, I don't remember, but yeah, I remember explicitly that like nobody ever says the words Wayland Utani in this, um, and I don't think it's ever on screen either because it's just like um, that's another thing I liked about it, just like right when it opens and it's just describing a Nostromo and it, it doesn't say like you know space voyage or Nostromo. It's just like no shipping vehicle. Yeah, um, yeah, it's just it's. Uh, just like it's, it just happens to be in space, um, which I think was great. But uh, yeah, so they set up like the company as the, like you know, and you know you can just they don't need to be like oh the company's just concerned about money, even though they probably said that at least once. You like the fact that you, they just call it the company, and the fact that you realize that these people are just like commercial truckers. You know, like all you can you can just sort of like really easily project like all of the ills of capitalism being magnified a hundredfold. Like just the way this the you know the the, the ship is like a hundred times bigger than a truck. You could see like the greed and everything just magnified, and you have no trouble believing that like crew is expendable is a totally reasonable thing to read on a computer screen yeah. in, in like at that point um, which I think was 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 um, pretty interesting in that and yeah that, that's another thing that I liked is that like you know oftentimes like when you get a spaceship it's you know a military or a navy spaceship uh, and in this it's just no it's it's a commercial freighter it's you know the, the government has nothing to do with this it's you know it's commercial science it's commercial mining it's you know commercial planetography I guess um, which is, you know, a pretty like a pretty stark contrast to something like um, Dune, where just you know, even in Dune, you know, even though you have Chome, it may as well just be another way. It, I mean, it is technically one of like the Landsred houses. It, it's not, you know, it's not. It's it, it's so big that it that it may as well be a government. But in this case, you don't get the idea that the company is that big, but it is big enough to just like be, you know, like antagonistically amoral to to the crew yeah. on board. Um, it exists on a different scale than uh, yeah. the the crew members certainly. Oh, I, I had another thing I wanted to say coming back uh, to that magazine choking screen and actually elaborate on something you had said about the sort of parallel to you know the the, the face hugger thing. Like maybe Ash's circuitry was like, oh, this is how you uh, kill a person. Um, more figuratively, and l- l- less arguing that Ash is making that decision based on that, but figuratively speaking, things going on in that scene. Um, the magazine he he's using is almost certainly a porno mag. Um, yeah. Given that uh, there's also nudes pinned up in that room, that's clearly like the I don't know the jack off room or something. Um, 
or, or, or you know, more, more generally, every it's room the, if you're on the right ship. Yeah, it's, it's, it's it's definitely the 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 the, the pinup room, whatever. This is like the, the 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 boys' room for hanging out and saying, "Oh yeah, there's naked ladies on the wall near me." Um, so he he uh, he assaults her with a porno mag. There's definitely that sort of like, regardless of how it's supposed to work mechanically, this notional sort of parallel to the 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 face hugger with this sort of like forced penetration thing. Uh, and, 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 and he gets super excitable. He starts spurting white fluid, you know, yep. the, the whole thing just ties together into this weirdly, uh, yeah, sort of masturbatory. I don't, I don't know what exactly it could be in a somewhat different film, a ridiculous, you know, capping off of a farcical, you know, sex scene or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There was, um, I read, uh, you know, there's, I actually wanted to talk about stuff like just, you know, like the, you know, fun things like the male gaze and the, the, the sexism present in this movie. But, um, I remember reading, I think it was an interview with one of the writers, it was either Ridley Scott or one of the writers, but I feel like it was one of the writers who said it was just like his goal with like the, the plot of this movie or like the mechanics of the way, you know, the alien works in this movie is that he basically wanted to have like, he, I, I, really i can't f- remember exactly how he phrased it but basically like his goal was to have a man be raped in this movie in a way that isn't like the conventional way he was just like i wanted like i didn't want it to be like a rape scene where that you have between two men but between like a man and a woman but have the victim be a man and just like have that trauma on screen just to display um how awful it is which I think is a pretty, you know, amazing way to think about it because yeah. uh, it's completely successful, yeah. like totally. Like you know, if you, you, you know, well, with, I, I that, feel like it, it's ex- it's executed somewhat figuratively as far as that goes. Right, right. Like, I mean, right. We're, we're talking primarily about Kane being uh, yeah for the face hugger, which I don't feel like. Not that I'm like you know, yeah, but if you're gonna do a rape scene, do a rape scene. You know, I, I don't yeah. mean it that way because, but 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 it 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 ends up being somewhat more figurative because it we get a much more elliptical treatment of. What would otherwise be sort of yeah. like the you know the, the the tropish you know moment of penetration yeah. type stuff? We don't even really see that. We just see the aftermath of it. Yeah, um, and I think that's that's why it, it it works so well is because you can't just do like a a a one to one like you know completely physical analogy where like the thing that would happen to one person happens to another person. It it you know that's what that's what he wanted to that's exactly yeah. what he didn't want to do because that doesn't work in that same way. Yeah. You just wanted to have that like same like visceral horror of it. And just, you know, and, and to do that, you know, you can change some of the things around and it ends up being like, you know, this, you know, hideous thing that, you know, like, you know, in, in, impregnates him through his stomach and then, you know, the or through his throat rather keeps him alive. And then, yeah, and it's just, you know, that that aspect to it is, is in a lot of ways like scarier than like what you actually see happening on the screen. And especially because um, there is like that real, this is just like another one of those things where I, I, where you know that like, they're just like, we can either, we can show either like the face hugger, like clamping onto his face and then doing all that stuff. And basically just, you know, if our effects aren't perfect, it'll be ruined or they could do what they did was which, you know, the thing opens, you look in there, it looks real and gross. The thing pops out. And then there is just an immediate, like just immediate smash cut to just like the outside of the crash ship and just the wind howling and totally still. And that's it. 
Yeah. And that was just like, you know, it was like that kind of cutaway that you've seen so many times before. And just like the context of that sort of cutaway works perfectly with this, um, which, which I really like. The other thing that is that um, this is really just like so not a male gaze e movie. In that, like, until the very end, I mean. Uh, yeah, end, yeah we need to get around the whole, yeah. the, the, the establishing that it is definitely a horror movie last yeah. 10 minutes of it. Yeah, but, like, you know, the opening scene, like, when, when you see, like, you know, somebody who is, again, not counting that very last scene, when you, like, the first time you see somebody, like, in their underpants um, for no good reason at all, you know, it's a dude. Um, you know, when you get somebody with, like, their shirt ripped open and they're gristling with, uh, gristling, glistening... <laughs> With sweat, it's it's Parker. He is the one with like you know his shirt torn open and you know like his beautiful like you know he's he's like really got a really good like dude's body on him. He's like built, but he's not like overly built, and he's just like sweating. And it's it's you know it might as well be like that like you know torn shirt shot on like you know a woman in any other like sort of horror slash sci fi movie, but it's not. And you know the whole time like you know uh, what is it called Ripley and. Um, uh, Ripley and Lambert both, you know, they're just in these space uniforms. There's no, like, nobody is wearing, like, uh, com- you know, everybody's just wearing, like, Chuck Taylor sneakers. Nobody's wearing heels for no reason that for them to be doing so on a spaceship. Um, but they're, at the same time, you know, they're not wearing, like, a uniform. They're all dressed, you know, they're wearing, like, parts of a uniform, but they're all dressed pretty casually. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, so, like, the, the movie just, like, avoids a lot of that ground. Um, and I think, like, the... I think... Oh, man, I'm trying to remember. Like, I think it's... Is it Lambert that, like, cracks, like, a gross joke? I mean, I'm sorry, it's Parker that, like, cracks a gross joke at, like, Lambert at the dinner table? <laughs> That's, yeah. I don't remember what it is, though. It, it, was some, it was some sort of, like, you know, uh, eating food versus eating pussy type thing. I think it was right. actually... It was, it was done much more, like, by implication, but, like, a really big eyebrow-waggling sort of sense of implication. Uh, yeah, but, like, at, at the very least, like, you know, it's not the best way, you know, like, the, the best thing to do is just, you know, maybe not make jokes like that without having a good reason to do it. But, you know, at the same time, whatever, like, this, it's, well, you know, I, I, like, I sort of bodiness adds to the to the realism, the fact that these are just, like, space truckers. They're, they're, they're coarse people. Yeah, and it was sort of established um, that kind of everybody was, like, fucking really, you know, was, yeah. the, like, the collective reaction around the table. Like, yeah. like not a how dare you, but, but yeah. still at the same time, kind of like, really? You're going to fucking... And then she sort of just, like, Lambert just sort of, like, laughs it off in, like, a sort of a genuine way, which implies that there's at least some kind of... Um, there, there's some kind of camaraderie between Lambert and Parker that he can yeah. that without her getting like super pissed off at him or without it being just like, Oh, that's just what guys are like. Yeah, I kind of get that impression. Like, like his Parker's antagonism with, uh, Ripley, uh, for much of the early part of the film, uh, seems to really be sort of a definitive aspect of his like resentment of, uh, whatever the, the structure and the contract structure and her as, you know, some officer type rather than uh, a grunt. And yeah, I don't feel like there's ever any of that kind of antagonism with Lambert. So it's really more about Parker's relationship with Ripley than it is about Parker just being a dick ass or whatever. The other thing is that um, Parker is like the point where, you know, like Ripley is yelling at Brett and Parker and the thing, they're both clearly like, at least in some way frightened of her. Which I, I think is great because they you know like they give her a bit of shit, but she shuts it down real quick, and then you know she does not like let them let them uh, you know 
get a word in. Yeah. Uh, and then and then that happens again when you know like everybody's having an argument. Parker's like, "Well, we should do this." She's like, "Shut the fuck up!" And he's just like, "We should shut the fuck up." He's like, "All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I got it. You go ahead, go ahead." Um, so yeah, that was you know there you and you know even though uh, what do you call it. Uh, Lambert is at points like imperiled. You at no point have you, you get the idea that she's imperiled because she's a woman. She becomes imperiled because she's like having a breakdown at the event, at the events of what's happening because she's absolutely not, you know, no, none of them were prepared for anything that happened. And, yeah. you know, like her just like being able to not cope with it emotionally is just like absolutely a, um, you know, absolutely. It's a reasonable say, character hey, reaction, yeah. not like a oh no, it's not, it's hysterical it's not like a gender thing. character yeah. reaction. Like you would, you know, everyone breaks down in their own way, save for you know, like the characters who don't have time to do so, because you know, like uh, Dallas, uh, Ash. I mean, not Ash. Fucking Kane, Dallas, and Brett are killed before they really figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, and you know, like you know, Parker Lambert goes nuts. Parker, you know, also flips out just like in a different and more, uh, what do you call it, in a more productive way. But he's also, you know, like he's the, he's the, what do you call it? He's, he's, he's the mechanic. He's like, he's, he's the guy who you think would, he, he's the guy that goes into the flaming room to fix the thing. Like that's yeah. not Lambert's job. Like he's the one who's got more, uh, practice being in control in a crisis because yeah. he's you know a fucking ship's engineer, um, and then you know Ripley manages to just more or less keep her cool the whole time, or if not keep her cool, just like not have it come out at the wrong time. Like all the way at the end when she like like the alien is right there, um, you know, and you do get like that you know gratuitous like she's cakey shot where she just takes off her clothes to go into the uh, hypersleep chamber and she's, you know, very clearly, you know, wearing small underpants and um Well they're sort of riding low and I wanna say yeah. her underwear in this movie, uh when I saw this as a kid you know, I, I, I wasn't even, you know, I hadn't seen a whole lot of women in underwear, period. And I, do, I don't remember being particularly like, you know, this was not my big, you know, sexual awakening moment by any uh, stretch. Uh, I, I, I think, I think, uh, I, I think Sigourney Weaver is a fantastic actress, and I don't think that she is an unattractive woman as far as it goes, but to whatever extent people have, like, weird instinctual type and reaction to people I've never really been like oh man that sexy Sigourney Weaver for, for me whatever reason it's not you know where I am on it um, but anyway so so the underwear I remember seeing this and, and saying to someone in my family one of my sisters probably uh, you know it's like her underwear is like like falling down and I, I remember they, I, I think, had not been watching it at the time with me or weren't paying attention or something. And it was like, oh, no, women's underwear are just like that. And I was like, really? And they're like, oh, no, no, her, under, her underwear kind of falling down. Uh, and I was like, I'm, I'm so confused at age 10 about this underwear situation. That, you know, that, that was sort of like the weird thing when I had j- just watching it now that I didn't really occur to me before. Where, like, you know, while, you, while it is definitely like a cheesecakey shot, nothing that she's wearing is really like, you know, there's no reason why she wouldn't be wearing, you know, like a, a tank top and underpants to look like that because they they don't they're not like like out of character. Like she's not wearing like lingerie for yeah, some it's reason. Yeah, just like they, white cotton underwear. You know, yeah, they just you know they're just not like they're not a uh, what do you call it? Uh, what do you, the, just the 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 thing that keeps the 
them on there is smaller than it would be on a pair of guys' underpants. And also, when she like you get you get like clearly like the like stretching out like butt shot of her, it's not like sexy butt. She's got like plumber's crack. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's was, interesting because, like, on the one hand, it feels like we've we've gone into the classic. Like the last ten minutes are horrible. Movie, like, like to a T almost with this. We've got the we've got the false happy ending uh, coda where, like, you know, she's all like, "I got you, you son of a bitch." You know, the, the ship has exploded. We've gotten the triple explosion, which is I don't know why you have three explosions. Maybe well, you've got the three different modes of propulsion, and each one of them explodes separately. <laughs> right, right. That's probably it. And I like the little bit of 2001-esque uh, sort of split-scan animation oh, yeah, yeah. On, the, on the third explosion. I thought the explosions themselves were sort of silly-looking, but whatever. I will bet you they were just like, hey, how'd they do that? I wanted to do exactly like the way they did on 2000. <laughs> did. Uh, but yeah, so she's like, I got you, you son of a bitch. You know, melancholy music plays. She hugs the cat, puts the cat, you know, into, into its pod. Uh, and then, yeah, and then we get this, like, girl in her underwear stuff and it's not it's not particularly dotingly sexualized but at the same time it's unambiguously hey let's linger on her while she strips down to her underwear and it's a weird sort of like it's like they went halvesies on the obligatory cheesecake shot because they didn't really cheesecake it very much but they also didn't just not do it like there's so many ways they could have shot that they could still have involved her getting down to her underwear without like literally filming her stripping down to her underwear you know, it's, it's weird that they, they, they took that specific sort of... Most people who just, who just endured, like, a, what she endured probably is not going to get undressed in that, like, you know, smoothly. I think there's going to be, like, a lot of hopping around on one foot trying to get the yeah. pants off over the boots. and But, yeah, she just really sort of... It, it's it's well, definitely, I, like, I, a I movie like, undressing sort and, of thing. And how much of it, like... Uh, assuming they weren't going for particularly cheesecake, because my impression is they weren't, you know, how much of the fact that they didn't have a more matter of fact, you know, taking off your clothes and fuck, throw it in the corner, crawl into bled, bled, say shit, you know, whatever, drink some coffee. How much of that that we didn't get was because it was operating under that weird spell of a, we really need to pretend the movie is over now part before we get to the final scare, you know, because, because it really, it, it does feel like, so prototypically, so so classically, uh, the fake happy ending segment of a yeah. horror movie. And like maybe if they'd done a little bit more naturalistic, her getting ready to get into hypersleep and whatnot, you know, it wouldn't have felt as appropriately jarring when they had the sudden return to oh shit, scary. Uh, I don't know. It's it's yeah. It's hard, it's um, hard for me to say exactly yeah. what's going on there. And then she just, like, immediately gets, like, into a space suit when she sees the alien. Like, she does, like, all of the right things to avoid it, which I think was, was you know, like, you, you... Maybe it's supposed to, like, lull the viewer into, like, a false sense of, like, empathetic vulnerability, where it's like, well, she's in her underpants now, that's, you know, that, you know, in a horror yeah, movie, that which, means, which, you know, vulnerable, yeah. but she's no more or less vulnerable than she was before she took off her clothes, or more, no more or less capable. Yeah. Um, so I think, I don't know, maybe that's, it was supposed to be, like, a fake-out like that, where... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, it, it's that, hard that, for me to parse what they were going for with that. It, it, yeah, it, it's 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 borderline jarry, and yet another one of those moments I think could have ruined the movie if it was any more sexualized. Yeah, um, and yet on the other, and yet you know, it still totally works. Like you know, she she quickly gets into like the spaceship. And then uh, you know, blows the, the the alien out the airlock, and then and then roasts it. Yep. 
And then, you know, she arms herself first with the uh, that grappling hook launcher thing. Yep. Which, uh, which is nice. Yeah, you, 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 the fact that she sort of, like, immediately put a plan together is great. And I, I want to say the the moment where we find out that the alien is there, I, I, I think that's that's such a great great moment like i love the fact that they stuck that shiny gray alien head just in in frame and it's there like yep. once you know to look for it you watch the movie again you're like oh shit there's the alien but the first time like the first time i saw the film i legitimately did not see it until we get the close-up where it moves like it i i feel like they could have done something other than the hand jumping out because again it's a little bit yeah. jazz hands it's like why not just have it move and let her pick that up that'd be super fucking terrifying on its own um, but in any case, I, I love – it's a great setup for a jump scare and a, a wonderful sort of trick to play on the audience to take advantage of the alien look of this and set it in with the gray pipes of the ship itself to just sit there in plain sight hiding. I, I thought that was really nice. Um, yeah, it sort of reminds me of the reveal shot of it, which is like one of those blink and you'll miss it things, where uh, the first time we see like the fully formed xenomorph is when uh, Harry Dean Stanton is looking for Jonesy. And there's, you know, he's like looking around and he, you know, like he looked, there's all that moisture coming off the whatever the hell. And he just like sort of takes his hat off to get some moisture on his face. And then there's a, a cut to like directly over where he's, where that's happening. And the xenomorph is hanging like upside down, um, off of one of the chains completely still. Like clearly, I, I, I don't know if they, I I suspect that was just a, a a model that they used that, you know, they weren't using the actor who was in the suit. Um, but yeah, like he's just like totally still like swinging with the chains, and like I had to rewind that, being like, I oh shit, yeah, that huh, and then it comes down. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's they they did they got a lot of uh, they got a lot out of the fact that the alien is as oftentimes not moving as it is moving. Yeah, like it's it's, it's just it's scary looking, and and every t- every moment that it's not moving. It's again not obvious that it's a guy in a suit because I mean, you know, your your choices is is a guy in a suit or puppetry or CGI, and that's another thing that you may actually find bothersome in Resurrection is they do use at a couple points some not necessarily bad but conspicuous like CGI full body alien movement. Yeah, uh, that's like yeah, but uh, yeah, no, it's a. Uh, um, yeah, the use, I, again, the use of stillness. I feel like stillness and slowness and a, and a sense of moments of, of stillness and, and, and stasis and waiting are so effective in this movie just in general as like a defining feature of what works. There's this, you know, every lacuna in this movie is to its benefit. And, and as much as I like Aliens, Aliens is a film that doesn't really do stillness. Right. You know, it, it has breathers between action pieces at, at best for the most part. Uh, there was um, the one thing about like the alien design that I think even to this point works better in like animation, maybe even CGI or just in concept than it does execution is like the in the internal mouth thing. Just watching it like come out in this movie a couple times, that like that is the one thing about like the entire design that just like I think falls flat the the hardest. It, it feels it feels a little bit like you know, and I remember it was the coolest fucking thing in the world when I was a kid. And part of the problem may just be at this point it's like it's hard not to think hard about really this is what you're doing rather than just being like, oh my God, that's the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. 
but uh but yeah it's uh it, it does feel a little bit like oh and check out this cool thing we built where there's its mouth comes out there's a smaller mouth, mouth inside. inside the big yeah. mouth um, a little bit mr peanut butter yeah. there yeah oh you were talking about um things that cgi might improve in this movie, I think one of the things that, that might do it is that when the chest burster bursts out of uh, Kane's chest, that could look a lot less like a puppet on a stick. Yeah, and when it scurries across the table, that's another little moment of like, I don't even know how this thing is locomoting. We don't yeah, have it's a got, sense of what it, the limbs are like. But we tiny wheels on yeah, it? Yeah, it's just like, um, it's like a fucking Hot Wheels going across yeah. that, that table, which... Yeah. And when it, you know, I think that's why the um, the parody of this scene in Spaceball works so well. <laughs> it's just because you know, like when when they start doing like the super super like discount budget uh, marionetting with like the puppet doing the uh, Michigan J Frog dance, uh, you know, the hello my baby, hello my honey thing. Yeah. It looks so like fake and awkward. It works because that's just how like they were working the chest burster itself in the actual movie yep. it, it was equally like sort of awkward and clearly like a person turning a thing that's on a stick uh like a totally still like unmoving thing that's on a stick even though was there any movement to it like to the face i think it didn't look like it it was just very uh, from what it, i remember it, it was just very clearly like a model of something that did yeah, not have any moving yeah, parts yeah it, it did not have a sense of like being a fluid thing it, it seemed yeah. very very static which is funny cuz it's such an iconic moment yeah. at the same time yeah i think like some really tastefully done yeah. uh cgi work focusing on you know a realistic look rather than crazy dynamism could have given it sort of a more organic threatening feel but or at least like in the context of the movie itself i think maybe if it was like less of an anthropomorphic design they could have done more where like the yeah. face hug is just like you know we can assemble this out of like you know goop and crab parts and then paint it and it looks it it looks like nothing you've ever seen before and it looks like what it's supposed to look like which is just like this hideous organism you know if they had tried to go for that kind of a thing with the chest burster uh, I think it would have been more successful rather than just like have it be you know have it have like you know a head and two eyes and a mouth yeah and, um, and I think the, the 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 notion you raised of it like concept art versus on camera is a big part of the difficulty there because like a lot of Geeker's stuff really ended up looking great on film in this you know the, the 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 overall designs for everything look really cool. The alien looks really cool. The space jockey ship looks amazing. You know all this stuff looks great. And and if you look at the source material, it all looks fantastic in his art too. But yeah, like like he can get away with a sort of implication of a organic fluidity to something that it's much harder to turn into a working model. I think it's just the big problem. And so the guy in the rubber suit thing, they did themselves a lot of favors by keeping the alien so much seen in glances and relatively static shots. Because uh, if we had to watch it like running around after someone, it would have looked kind of kind of ridiculous. Super awkward, and yeah. something they actually did really well in Aliens to the extent that they felt like they needed to have a whole bunch of aliens crawling around. They at least did a pretty good job of shooting it dark and conveying what, well the movement. What did they do there? Was it dudes in suits or was it puppets? I'm assuming boats? it was good dudes in suits for a lot of it. Um, but there may have been a lot of puppet work too. I'm not really sure. I don't know a whole lot about how Aliens was made. Um but however it is, they managed to not have it feel like a bunch of guys running around Keystone cops in, in alien yeah. suits, which I really appreciate. And I think, I, think, I think the focus on crawling may have really helped there in Aliens. Like yeah. Things crawling along almost look automatically more animalistic than, than a human dude walking around on two legs. Uh, 
which may have been a big part of having it not seem fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, uh, a thing that I, I, I was surprised to see it, uh, just one more little detail from the end, Ripley singing herself. She's singing that line, you are my lucky star to herself nervously over again. Mm-hmm. I've seen this movie like, you know, easily a half a dozen, maybe, maybe closer to a dozen times over the last, you know, 20 something years. Uh, and I still did not remember that and was watching it the other night. And was like, Oh, right. She's singing a little thing to herself. And it's a great, it's a, it's a nice little thing. And apparently it was sort of just like an improvised thing that she came up with during shooting. According uh, to the internet, it's from something. Yeah. It's like from some old Broadway musical. I want to say. Yeah. Um, but oh, you mean like, like her singing, it was improvised. Not yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Her, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Her singing it. Like, I think mm-hmm. Weaver just came up with that during production and she was like, well, you know, trying not to lose her fucking mind and, you know, and as someone who tends to get weird little snippets of music in my head when I'm stressed, I totally like sympathize with it. So it's kind of funny that I, I somehow have never retained that detail uh, over the years. But I think I just tend to be so caught up in the scene at that point. It's like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, you know. And just wondering, like, other, like, you know, like, early 20th century, like, Broadway or, you know, popular music that you could have been singing yourself, just humming, yes, we have no bananas. <laughs> 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 maybe, some, maybe some Al Jolson. Uh, Swanee. Was that, was that Jolson? Swanee? I don't know. Yeah. I know he exists. I sort of would recognize him if I heard him, but uh, I actually don't know much about that whole sort of era of, of minstrel stuff. Um, I think, um, yeah. Also, uh, the, they, when she blows the alien out of the, this is another like this is just like a personal preference thing. I have there's little things that people do that aren't necessarily wrong, but I just don't like them. Um, when she blows the alien out of the 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 engine, we get three cross faded shots of it happening. Of the alien. Yeah, I really I never like that. It's it's just like, like yeah, I don't need to see it fucking three times. I saw it the first time. If you didn't get the shot reshoot it but don't show me a shot you don't like as much three times because none of them were very good if that's what you're doing and i don't need i don't need to have it repeated to know what happened because i'm i'm fucking on the edge of my seat watching the movie okay don't like fucking i i hate it when they just break linear continuity in a movie in which that's an established thing for several hours and you get the big shot where it's just like uh, rewind and again uh, rewind and again it's like no it's 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 jarring and not in a good way when you do that it just yeah. makes it look like you're you're trying way too hard what, what you're telling me is that you really liked this shot more than this is yeah. an important part of it's, it's narrative, telling and not know? showing in a way yeah it's like, like I, I associate that with like uh, independence day you know, they, they, there's like two or three different angles on the slow motion shot of the model of the White House being blown up. And you know what? It's fucking Independence Day. Go crazy. Yeah. This is all about big, dumb stuff. I will watch three different angles on your slow-mo explosion of the White House. But, like, that's a dumb fucking movie that I'm not going to be, like, worrying about the narrative coherence of. Something like Alien, it's a really solid – yeah, like you say, it's a linear narrative. We're not trying to take some sort of impressionistic – you know, image of dealing with this thing. This is all about people actually dealing with it. So it's it's weird when it does that. Um, I may have complained about this too, but on a similar sort of level, of just annoying me. Even though I understand that they're making whatever productive decisions they have to for pacing or whatever, I hate it when people go slow mo on footage that was not slow mo in the first place. Yeah, like I I'm so keenly aware that you have retroactively cranked down the effective 
speed of the camera by just repeating each frame two or three times to produce a slower shot there. But you just didn't get the shot. Go back and I mean, it's easy for me to say, hey, go back and get the shot when I realize this is probably something that happens in editing. They're like, fuck, we didn't get the shot. Can we go back for it? We can't go back for it. We need this to be longer because it goes by too fast. We'll just do the fakey slow-mo. And so I understand that probably every single time it happens, it happens because someone didn't have the better alternative they wanted. Like, I doubt anybody's ever written, and now we'll do shitty slow motion in the script. But, uh, but oh, every fucking time, it really bugs me. Yeah. There wasn't any of that in Alien, so Alien's a good movie. That's the end of my review. Uh, Speaking of which, we're, we're yeah, we're, we're pretty long. Three hours we should, now. We should, yeah, we're at like two forty, I think. So let's let's wrap this up. I will say one other little thing. I'll say uh, is the the score of this movie is a little bit more melodramatic and at times playful than I expected. And I, th- I a part of it is like there's some Mozart in here, uh, and I don't know. I, I don't know my classical music well enough to have picked out exactly where the, the bits of a couple pieces were, but that's part of it. But it, it, it's a movie that is so effectively about horror and dread and whatnot that while it feels a little bit Kubrickian to have you know some light classical music in space, it also felt at times a little bit like you know Scooby Doo when it didn't need to. Yeah. Just a little bit of like sort of feel like no, there's a terrifying fucking thing going on here. We don't really yeah, there was definitely that. at some point that I have my notes that I can't find at this point where I was just like, this is really obvious, like, plucking of, of strings in an orchestra in, you know, in what is otherwise not that kind of a soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. And I, where I, it was, yeah. I, I, feel like, I feel like Aliens may have had the stronger soundtrack as far as that sensibility and tone, even though I don't think it really was going for the same tone. I just I was a little bit surprised, really paying attention to the soundtrack this time. That there were like multiple times in the film, I'm like, really, are we feeling a little bit playful and lighthearted right now? Is that what's, is that what's going on? But yeah, anyway, that was my final thought. I'll stop having thoughts about the the, the film. Uh, but it's Alien. Boy, I love this movie. There's a uh, last thing I want to say is that on IMDb under factual errors, there's an explanation of why those dippy birds wouldn't work. <laughs> That's right. I saw one in the background at some point. It was, yeah, it was in, like, the opening long take when they're showing, like, they're trying to demonstrate that the thing has been empty. There's, like, a dippy bird that's working, even though uh, apparently the water would have evaporated at that point. Maybe maybe it's... What if it's space water? What if it's vodka, huh? Smart guy? What if if it's a (laughs) vodka-powered dippy bird? (laughs) Anonymous commenter on IMDb. Yeah. Um, All right, so, yeah, so... Maybe we should do Prometheus for the next episode, and then Alien Three, and that way it breaks it up. Yep. Uh, say without this. it, let's say let's let's definitely do Prometheus for the next episode. I would like and to do we'll Alien see how Three at some feel. point, but yeah, we might want to take a break from this particular universe for something else, and come back to Alien Three later on, um, just so we don't spend the entire rest of the year on on the Alien franchise. Um, to the wailing screams of the people who want us to spend the entire rest of the year on the Aliens franchise. But, yeah, we've got to make some Go work. back and listen to that time that we spent doing the entire Hellraiser <laughs> yeah, go, franchise. Go into, like, episode seven of Hellraiser. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, let's, let's do Prometheus next time. Let's do that, because okay. I'm looking forward to finally seeing it and finally developing mixed feelings about it. I, I think the one thing I should tell you and the viewers, anybody else who's going into Prometheus, uh, having never seen it before, do not make the assumption that the people you see on screen have the jobs they do because they are the most competent at it. 
I've just assume they have that job because nobody else would take a job that ridiculously <laughs> stupid, dangerous, and time-consuming. These are the people that like could not get a better job or are, you know, uh, just in some way something's up with them. And, and I think that explains a lot of the nonsensical stuff in this movie as far as why certain characters do certain things that nobody in their right mind would ever do. Would ever do. Um, and, and the other thing is that uh, a lot of the movie just does not. It, 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 you're not going to get an answers to why certain people are doing certain things that aren't like metatextual. Well, this is basically like two or three scripts, like, you know, stitched together like Frankenstein's monster. Um, I don't know. I feel like maybe that's. I. I'm too many warnings will just like you know I, I don't want to give this movie too many warnings because this is I I genuinely enjoy Prometheus and I often feel like I'm the only person alive who genuinely enjoys Prometheus but maybe I'll have a really good attitude about it like uh, people have told me I will hate it because they know I like Alien uh, but you know I've I've, I've, I've I've liked other somewhat dumb things before it, so. it, it evaluate it on its own terms or as a a a response to alien of some by somebody who loves alien and the mythos and the franchise rather than just something that's meant to take place in alien canon. All right. I, I think that would be like the best way to go into it. Like no matter how much it tries to be, uh, no matter how much it tries to tell you that it's part of the alien canon, just think of it as like that little brother who wants to play with you, but he's not really playing on the same level that everybody else is. <laughs> Um, yeah. uh, right. So, um, that's, I guess that's all. For I think us that's, our show. I think that's our show. Uh, go do the things, go poke the stuff, go say yeah, hi go. on Facebook and, and, uh, uh, we haven't been, um, very participant in, in Facebook for a while just cause I, I think we both had a lot of shit coming it's, up. It's, yeah. It's been a, it's been a busy, it's been a busy whole few months basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, I assume now we're actually going to get back to a more decent schedule because I am finally in. Yeah, in, you in finally permanent, moved into uh, your actual home. Yeah, I. You know the the there's the, I I don't see any like stuff on the horizon coming up that has to be solved this weekend. Right now, absolutely this weekend because all of my things are in one place for the first time in six months. Um and and yeah. So you've heard it here first. We'll be back in about six weeks. <laughs> no, hopefully just hopefully just two, maybe three. We'll see. Yeah. But uh, yeah. All right. Well, good talk right. to you and good, good yep. alienating. Uh, don't uh, choke anybody with magazines. I can't promise you that. Okay. Well, just try. <laughs>